my lovely, wonderful friend. How are you? My darling, my love, light of my life. I'm fucking fantastic. How the fuck are you? I'm doing so much better now that I see your gorgeous face and I got to hang out with you. Yay. I love it when you say that. (laughs) It's true. I I only speak the truth. That is true. I love your brutal honesty. (laughs) For better or worse. (laughs) For better, always. (laughs) What have you been up to? I finally watched the season finale of Welcome to Chippendales. And? Bananas. Bananas yeah. McGee. I, I was not prepared. Yeah. I was not prepared. So I was very interested in how they were going to do it because his arrest, getting to that point, is extraordinarily convoluted that it involves many more countries than were shown in the series. Oh, shit. Okay. And I was like, how the fuck are they going to film this? It's very wild and convoluted. And the FBI spent so much money trying to get this to happen. But I I thought they did a really great job simplifying it because realistically for the series, it's not really relevant other than like this shit's crazy. And it would have just eaten up like 45 minutes of, of the fucking series. But yeah, fucking crazy, right? So crazy. I'm not going to lie. I was like, good for Irene at the end of it. Cause I mean, bitch got her money girl. Yup. And she fucking didn't deserve, didn't deserve it. She was, I feel, again, not much is known about her, as you said, but. Sure. But I'm pretty sure if she was a piece of shit, we would know. Right. So the fact that no one knows, I think that just means that she was a decent human being. Yes. So get that money. Get that money. Girl. Okay. But did I miss something? What the fuck happened with Steve getting murdered in like the first episode? Spoiler. Shit. Sorry. Steve? No. What the fuck was his name? The dude. Nick Denoya? No. The guy from the first episode who was like the fucking... Oh my God. Why am I blanking on his name? Oh, um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Dorothy Stratton's and, and, and the dude. Yes. What the fuck was his name? I don't know. Fuck him. He's a piece of shit. He was. He was an asshole. But like, uh, did they ever reference that again and I missed it? No, it's not referenced because it's not really relevant. Okay. But Steve didn't have anything. I fucked up the names there. Sorry. Steve didn't have anything to do with his death, correct? No. Yeah. uh, No, no, no. That was just, uh, it's a very well-known thing that he was very insecure and very abusive and very controlling of Dorothy Snyder. So that was him. That was a murder-suicide situation. Yes. Closed, shut. Okay. It was just wild because of their connection to Chippendales. It was wild. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I knew I was like, I'm not even going to look this up because I'm just going to ask my naked Monique soon enough. She's going to tell me it's going to be great. Yeah, yeah. And it's just that, you know, reinforces the thing of the most dangerous time for a domestic abuse victim is in the six months after they leave. Oof. Yeah. Because she had left him and like was like, hey, like, let's like, let's keep this cute. Like, let's just get a divorce, like move on, whatever. And he's like, fine, come and meet me. And then that's how that. Then he like sexually assaulted her and then killed her and then killed himself. Fuck. Mm-hmm. Because he felt like he was, he's just gross and a piece of shit and, and forced her to like take nudes and stuff. And she didn't really want to. And then he's the one who submitted it to Playboy. And then she became famous. <gasps> and he was like, well, the only reason you're famous is because of me. And then, and then he had, was super insecure being like, everyone wants to fuck you. The only reason they're nice to you is because they want to fuck you. And blah, blah, blah. and it's like, Eat a dick, dude, you want to fuck me? Shut the fuck up. Yeah. If I wasn't a hot fucking chick, you wouldn't be interested. So pot kettle. Hi. Yeah. And it's just like hypocrisy. She's with you. 
don't be a dick. Go to a fucking therapist. Treat her right. And she won't have a reason to fucking leave. Right. You know, it's that it's so simple. And for some reason, so many people don't understand that. I I was like, I didn't know this was like such a crazy, crazy idea I'm throwing out there, but just saying. <laughs> for a lot of people, it is. And obviously that it stems from like a very deep insecurity is what uh, controlling people are deeply insecure. Yeah. But uh, yes, so that uh, Steve Banerjee did not kill them. <laughs> okay. That was my assumption because they never addressed it, but I was like, Okay. Did I miss something? I was like, and because you didn't know that they were their whole thing. Cause it's a very, it's a very well-known thing. The Dorothy Stratton um, thing. Yeah. Cause she was, she, her star was rising and she was getting cast in movies and this and that. And she was playmate of the year, I think. And then he just couldn't handle it. He couldn't handle it. So he just fucked it up. And then she was like, okay, I'm out because you just keep treating me like shit and abusing me. And then he's like, and it was that thing of like, if I can't have you, no one can bullshit. What a fucking asshole Mm -hmm. yeah all right that's fucked up i was like but i'm glad you cleared that up for me sure totally um speaking of fucked up i finally saw the second season of the vow oh so i originally had no intention of watching the second season because it came out which uh for those who don't know the vow is all about the nexium cult in albany and i had no intention of watching the second season because it came out that the protagonists of the first season, true to form, heavily downplayed their involvement. Involvement, not yep. not just their involvements, but like the, the the bad things they did in season one. Yep. Because they'd be less sympathetic, obviously. So I was like, ah, fuck this. I'm not gonna watch the second season. But Christina, when she was up here, was like, you should, you should watch it. And I did, and I binged all of it in a day. I don't know why. <laughs> I do, Monique. Because it's very compelling. It, yep. You you need to watch the next episode. And it autoplays. So if you're just sitting there, it fucking, you're like, oh, am I five episodes deep now? Awesome. Yeah, exactly. And I don't know how it turns out that the situation was even worse than what was portrayed in season one and in the Seduced documentary series. But somehow it is. What the fuck? It can always get worse, Monique. It can always get worse. Yeah. And it's so enraging like, I don't even know what to say other than it was very upsetting and enraging to watch. And then I'm glad that piece of shit got 120 years. Bye. Yeah. Thank fuck. Yeah. And just the hold that people are still, because unlike season one, season two is filled with lots of talking heads of people who still very much support him oh. and the cult. So that was a very interesting perspective. No. Mm-hmm. Did you yeah. hear the fucking shit he said? Don't support that fucking piece of shit, please. Yeah. But then being like, well, he didn't do this. This other people did this. And these are unrelated things. And Or he really helped me. And I think it's the prosecutor. Someone someone makes a comparison that's a very... I, it sounded silly, but I also thought it was, it was an apt comparison. That it was like, just because every time I've gone swimming in the ocean, I've had a good experience. So that means I can't ever drown. What? And like being like, well... If you drown, like, that's not possible because every time I've gone to the ocean, I've been fine. So clearly that couldn't have happened to you. And it's like, that's fine, but that's not how that works. No, not at all. Yeah. What are you actually talking about? Yeah. Yeah. But also speaking of traumatizing, good fuck, uh, you traumatized so many people with your first story. Did I? (laughs) I'm sorry. I've gotten, I've gotten DMs about nightmares and people being like, (gasps) holy fuck. 
Oh, no. I mean, I t- it was the worst story I've ever heard. It was pretty terrible. I'm sorry. It was pretty terrible. I know. I did it to you guys and I did it to myself and I did it to Monique. It was my fault. I said we were going hard and you did. And, you did. and I knew it. I thought that meant a cannibalism story, which it also was because of course, but I, I didn't know it was going to be that. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know what? They do it to themselves too. They listen to this. That's true. <laughs> That's true. I warned you guys. I gave you the she heads did. up. You she knew did. it was going to be bad. You could have pulled a Donna and just noped right the That's fuck right. out of that one. So I had the most wonderful exchange with Donna ever. I, all, I mean, all she's wonderful. wonderful. I'm not surprised. Yeah. Yeah. There was two exchanges that were really great. Uh, one, Donna watched White Lotus, finally. <laughs> she was obsessed. Of course. And she was with you about the gays. She was like, I was sus immediately when they were complimenting her. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. They were way too nice. No. And I was like, Donna, this, this literally happened to me on Friday. Like, this happens to me all of the time. I could see that. I don't find it surprising for you, really. But if anyone did that shit to me, I would be like, this is immediately suspect. Like, no. Yeah, Donna was like, the difference is you're wonderful. And Tanya was not. <laughs> yes. That was the thing. It like came out of nowhere. She didn't like say anything to them that was like super witty and charming. And they were just like, oh my God, this girl's amazing. They were just like, love your dress. You're fabulous. And I was like, no, 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 no. I literally barely remember this on Friday at my like fourth stop of the night. I had a Friday girls. It was, it was a vibe. My like fourth stop of the night. I was at a gay bar because they have really cheap drinks. And this has been told to me because I barely remember it. And the person I was with was like, (laughs) these gays were like, Oh my God, you're so beautiful. And I was like, thank you. I know. (laughs) And those like, and I love your bag. And I was like, I know. Thank you. It's amazing. I have fantastic taste. And I was like, I am so insecure all of the time that I'm really happy that blackout me is like so confident nailing it. I'm like, I'm so confident. I'm like, I know. I'm amazing. Thank you. That is the level of drunk I seek to achieve <laughs> when I drink is just like nonstop confidence. Apparently, which I think there's, there's not a time I should be less confident than when I'm like blackout realistically. And then the other thing <laughs> is Donna and I, uh, she's a big sports person and she was like, I got to go. I got to go watch the game because I took her out for brunch for birthday. She's like, I got to watch the game. And she roots for the Giants. I have no affiliation. I don't care. Um, so I don't really need a DM about what you feel about sports. I don't care. But uh, so she's going to go see the Giants. And I was like, who are they playing? Which was kind of like a who knows if I'll know what this team is. And then her all the dice dice. odds are probably not. And then she goes the Vikings and I take a second and I go Minnesota Vikings. I know that because of Lizzo. Lizzo. I was going to say, you know, you know, it was very exciting. (laughs) The little things guys. (laughs) You're like, I know sports things. I definitely don't. I just knew that because I know Lizzo. Uh, That's okay. One time somebody randomly quizzed me on what Michael Jordan's number was. And I only knew because of the Miley Cyrus song 23. So I don't know this song. They were super impressed. And then I was like, please don't be impressed. Like I literally know this because of Miley Cyrus. So I don't, I don't think you're going to value that. But I don't know the Miley Cyrus song. This was, at, yeah, this was after her Disney phase when she's, you know, talking about Percocets in the club and shit. Oh shit. So obviously right in my alley. <laughs> <laughs> I love some club music, let's say. Sure. 
has its moments. I don't know. I think I need to be blackout in a gay bar like I was on Friday and being told I'm fabulous by a bunch of gays. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, that's great. That sounds great. That sounds lovely. It is great. It's wonderful. Yeah. Who doesn't want that? But it ha- it happens with, with regularity. That's like- That has never happened to me, Monique. I'm going to tell you that right now. <laughs> never once in my life. I've also told you that I get offered drugs by strangers all the time. And Christina, I was with her once and she saw it happen. And she's like, that has literally never happened to me. I'm like, this happens to me all of the time. Like that is a barometer for how awesome you are, by the way, because that's <laughs> drugs are expensive and people generally don't like sharing them with strangers. So if a stranger is like, you're fucking great. Do you want to go do this with me? Yeah. All the time. Girl. Yeah. I think it's also because I have the vibe that I don't want it. <laughs> I don't want them. You're like a cat there. You are. <laughs> I don't want to do cocaine. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so flattered, but I don't, I will, I don't want to do lines off of a toilet in a fucking house of blues. Ooh, no, thank you. No, no. Love that journey for you though, girl. Live your truth. Not for me. <laughs> <laughs> I still can't get over this. And I'm so impressed for the record. Like, I know you It's you don't care and it's not, a th- but I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> like, fucking get it, Monique. Oh man, I love you. Anything else before we get to get to the shit? No, nah, nothing pressing. I was like, we can get to it. You want to go right into some? Let's fucking go. Let's get into the spooky shit, baby. Some fucking paranormal shit. Yeah. All right. So my story this week is brought to you by Paranormal Witness. Fuck yeah. Season two, episode 12, The Tenants. However, because it's me, I went down a fucking rabbit hole and I was like, this is fascinating. And then I started Googling it and I was like, oh shit, there's a book. So did I then have to read the entire book because I'm a fucking psycho? Yeah, of course, Monique, because that's how it goes. I am so envious at how you can just read a book in a short period of time. It would take me like three months to read whatever the fuck you're reading. It always takes me way longer than I think. And then when I'm recapping it, I'm always like, oh my God, I'm not recapping this as quickly as I need to. What? Okay. What is way longer to you? Like in your mind, what is way longer? So the Kindle app will tell you how long approximately it, it will take to read this book. So this book, it said was supposed to take me just under four hours, but I feel like with like stopping and highlighting, it took me probably like six, which to me is like way, way too long. Cause I'm a, I'm a very fast reader. I think maybe I've read like three books in under six hours in my life. It's like, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't very long. I think, you know, so it, Still, it varies. I'm, I'm wildly impressed. And every time when you're like, I read a book for you guys. I'm like, you're not going to hear me say that ever. <laughs> there was like one time I did it and it was like a chapter that I read. There tends to be some amount of skimming because obviously <laughs> there's a lot of details that I'm like, all right, we're not getting into this. Like, let's, okay. We got the gist. Cool, cool, cool. Moving along. I will not stop being wildly impressed. Well, thank you. I'll take it. It's like, <laughs> random gays aren't fawning over how amazing I am, Monique. So I will take whatever the fuck I can get. Because you're not leaving your apartment enough. Okay, that's true. Damn it. Why do you have to be so logical? I love it. <laughs> I love it, but damn you, woman. I will get gays to fawn over you on Sunday. Oh so help me God. Stop it. So help me God. It's just going to end up with more of them fawning over you. I love it. Shut the fuck up. Stop. <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't even mind. I like to bask in your glory. It's fine. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> All right. So the book was called True Haunting by Edwin Becker. Yes. Love it already. Boom. Girl. So the following events took place in Chicago between 1970 and 1971. Mm-hmm. By July 1970, Edwin, a.k.a. Ed Becker, and his wife, Marcia, had been married for three years and were expecting their first child. They were happy, and at that point in their lives, they thought nothing could go wrong and life was exactly as it should be. But when Ed went to drop off the rent to their landlord that month and mentioned that Marcia was pregnant, she coldly told them that unfortunately, she didn't allow pets or children in the apartment, so they would need to find someplace else to live immediately. Ugh, that was such a thing. It was, yeah. In that time period. You could just it, do that. Yeah. <laughs> you so far. You could just do that. Yeah. At my, when my parents were, you know, when they were kids and they'd come from Cuba, there was the like, no pets, no Cubans, no children, like signs Crazy. in the windows and shit. Like when you were renting, you're like, what the fuck? And like everyone would just like shrug, okay. No, what, what they would do is they'd like would have two like the parents show up and then they would smuggle the kids. I think that's what my dad, my dad's family did. That there was like four of them, and they just oh like, my Shh. god, just like quiet, everyone quiet. I mean, I've definitely lived in some places that didn't allow dogs, where I literally like smuggled my dog in and out of the apartment in a bag, and then would like let him go to the bathroom, and then put him back in the bag and take him upstairs. So, <laughs> uh, no judgments. Do what you got to do. You know. Hey. Now, the crazy thing was, Marsha was seven months pregnant at this time. Suboptimal for moving. What the fuck, girl? Literally, you're like, okay, great, two months, and I'm already like worried about the baby's room and all this other shit. You're like, cool. My water's going to break like right meow. Any minute. And Ed was like, she was the size of a beach ball and she was like super petite. So she looked like she was ready to burst at any moment. Yeah. So he was super distressed at the prospect of having to find a new place to live in such a short amount of time. That's distressing when you don't have that looming on, looming over you. Just, just like that's, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Yes. I stressing moving is so stressful. Like I never want to do it. I don't know how you've done it so many times. Even when I know I should. No, girl. I know, same. Yeah, I feel that. Because it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. Ed made a meager salary as a computer programmer, but because computers were still new at that time, very few companies could afford to employ someone in such a position, and he considered himself lucky to even have a job in his field. And even though she was heavily pregnant, Marsha was still working 50 hours a week at her job as a key punch operator. Despite both of them working full-time, Money was tight and they didn't really have the funds for a new place. But with no other choice, they began saving as much as possible while Ed set out to find a new place to live. It was July 25th, 1970, when Ed came across an ad for an air sale, meaning someone had died and the building was being liquidated by the heirs. Mm. It was a two-flat building in the inner city and thinking they could live in one apartment while they rented the other out and they helped pay the mortgage. Yeah, of course. He set up a showing. The house was a dirty, plain old building located on Campbell Street, and Ed said that even on that sunny July day, it looked gloomy. But he just chalked it up to its dirty gray color and the fact that it sat in the shade of a huge elm tree in the front yard. The realtor said they should start the tour on the second floor since a member of the family still lived on the first, but assured him that the family was moving her to a nursing home and she wouldn't be there when they moved in. The realtor then informed Ed that the old woman, whose name was Myra, was as crazy as a loon and told him not to pay attention to her. As they started up the stairs, the woman emerged. Ed said it looked as though she hadn't bathed or washed her clothes in months and that her hair was a filthy matted gray. She was clutching a tiny poodle to her chest that, if possible, looked even dirtier. 
Ed said she looked like the perfect image of an evil old witch with the poodle as her familiar. The woman began screaming at them immediately, calling them sons of bitches and yelling at them to get out. Oh my God. The realtor, who seemed very used to this sort of reaction, merely yelled at her to shut up and get her ass back in there. Although Ed was disturbed by this interaction, having been taught to respect his elders, he just continued on the tour. When they went upstairs and looked inside, the place was a wreck and looked as though it had been vandalized. Everything was torn apart and there was debris strewn everywhere. But he was convinced that it was nothing but a deep clean and some new paint and carpeting couldn't solve. The realtor then took him down to the basement, which had three partitioned rooms that were used for storage. One was padlocked, one was empty and clean, and the other had been used for coal storage years ago and was filled with soot. At the front of the basement, though, was a finished room containing a pot-bellied stove and a large armchair. As soon as they entered, Ed noticed the smell of burning wood, even over the smell of coal, which apparently lingers and is like impossible to get out, and said it was so strong that he immediately checked the stove for something smoldering, but it was clear that it hadn't been used for years. He also noticed it was very cold in the basement, but since that wasn't really that unusual, he just ignored the goosebumps he had. The realtor, who prior to this had been very chatty, was oddly quiet as they looked around and seemed nervous, according to Ed. They encountered Myra again when they went to tour the first floor, and like before, she screamed obscenities at Ben and told them to get out. Leaving the realtor to deal with her, Ed continued to look through the apartment. He noticed that one of the bedrooms was noticeably colder than the rest, and once again got goosebumps. But since it was dark back there and towards the back of the house, he chalked it up to that and just brushed it off. Despite the condition the house was in, Ed knew they needed a place to live quickly and was already sold. He made an offer and managed to get the building with a very low down payment. He arranged to bring his wife for a tour a few days later, and when they entered, they both noticed the stairwell was dark and forbidding. Ed said it was something they noticed throughout the whole building. Even after they moved in and replaced the bulbs and added light fixtures, the building always seemed dark. Ed said it was as though the interior was absorbing the light somehow. They also noticed that despite the fact that it was a hot and humid July day, the apartment seemed unusually cold. And Marsha also said she smelled the scent of wood burning when they went down to the basement. But again, they checked the stove and it was unused. When Ed suggested she could do the laundry down there, Marsha flat out refused and said she never wanted to come down there again. He could tell she was uncomfortable, but just figured it was because it was so dirty down there. Ed managed to finish showing her the apartment. And fortunately, Myra did not make an appearance while Marsha was there. After the sale went through, Ed began to work on cleaning up the place before they could move in on December 1st and enlisted the help of his brother. However, it was during the renovations that Ed began to notice there was something off with the house. While his brother was painting the bedroom upstairs that Ed had thought was oddly cold, Ed saw that he kept looking over his shoulder and had a, quote, strange look of anticipation on his face. Not saying anything, he walked into the room to see what his brother kept looking back at, but all he saw was an empty closet. When he looked inside, he saw nothing. But when he looked down, there on the floor was a very old Ouija board leaning against the wall. Oh, no. Red fucking flag. I would be like, we need to cancel the sale. Absolutely the fuck not. Priest party, coconuts, get the whole shit. Girl, no. no. Uh Uh-uh. No. He assumed that that was what his brother kept looking at, and that was why he seemed so bothered. But when he showed it to him, his brother said he hadn't seen it in there and had just felt like he was being watched. 
They examined the board, which was old and appeared well-used. But thinking it was nothing more than a game, Ed tossed out on the back porch to get rid of it. As they continued working, Myra decided to make an appearance. She stared directly at them and began laughing hysterically before her mood suddenly changed and she began crying uncontrollably. Without saying a word, Ed herded her back downstairs while she continued to weep. After that, he decided to explore the basement and noticed that the room down there that had been padlocked was still locked. And Ed was immediately excited, knowing that whatever was in there now belonged to him. No, see, you need that shit opened up before you put the down on it, girl. Right? I'd be like, bitch, that's where the fucking bodies, bodies are. Bodies. I don't want to be pinched for some shit I didn't do. Mm-mm. Girl, that... Or it's just like somebody's random fucking trash and storage and shit. That you have to throw out. No. Yeah. No, I don't want to deal with that. Thank you. No, no. I barely want to deal with my bullshit that I have in my apartment. Seriously. No. So he and his brother broke open the lock to see what was inside. When they opened it, there was barely enough room to move. And the entire room was filled with girly magazines dating back to the 30s. Oh, my God. There were hundreds and hundreds of them. I mean, there's, you know that they have to be like the pages stuck together and shit. Oh! I mean, let's be oh fucking real. Oh my God! <laughs> I love you! You sick fuck! I didn't even think of that. Oh! Th- They're not looking at it for the fucking composition of the fucking photo. Oh, no, I know. I just, I didn't think of it in such visceral terms. Oh! I feel like I just touched something sticky, Monique. I don't <laughs> like it. I have just been flailing around since Monique said that for the record. I, I mean, sh- you come across hundreds of girly magazines. Oh, yeah. No, they're definitely. Oh, it's for the spank bank. I love you so much. <laughs> I love you so much. All the awful things I've heard from you on this podcast and somehow like that got That's me. That's the one that did it. That That's was the, the one that, that broke it. you. <laughs> oh my God. Fucking cracking up over here, buddy. Gotcha, baby. Oh, it was a whole collection of nudist magazines as well as more modern issues of Playboy. The walls were also covered with pinups of women in provocative poses and there were a bunch of shoe boxes filled with cuttings from magazines. There were thousands of pictures of women in the shoeboxes. Anything remotely provocative, a cutout of a woman in a tight sweater or the image of a skirt blowing up, like just random images, not even full bodies sometimes. This is just a horn dog. Yeah. Ed knew immediately that this room belonged to a sick individual. And because there was a name written on almost every magazine he picked up, he knew exactly who the room had belonged to. Ben Verdeer one of the sons of the family who had owned the house. Ed decided not to tell Marsha what he had found because according to him, no good would come from it. So he just decided to leave it alone. As he left the basement and walked through the front room, he could once again smell burning wood and felt that there was something strange about that room. In the middle of this dismal basement was this finished room. It was livable and logically just didn't fit with the rest of the basement. As he walked out of the room and shut the door, it hit him. He realized the door had been equipped with an external padlock, and Ed started to believe that whoever had stayed in this room had been locked in. While he found this unusual, he wasn't really disturbed by the discovery. Ed is just like, no nonsense, does not believe in anything paranormal, is just like, no, it's weird, but people are weird, whatever. He's very blasé about this whole thing. I mean, yes, 
But I'm like, best case scenario, serial killer murder room. Right? Like, if I come across that much pornography, and it's not even just pornography, like the the, the clippings and the shoeboxes, I'm like, this is like trophy, like serial killer shit. Yeah. This is very disturbing. I'm concerned. I'm because, Yeah. That amount. Yes. You know, kinks and fetishes are great and they're normal, but like that amount is is alarming. Yeah. I would be disturbed coming across We're that. We're hoarding. This is like hoarder level at this point. Yeah. Over the next few weeks, he tried to lighten the place up. But again, no matter what he tried, the light was always inadequate and he couldn't seem to get rid of the dark, shadowy atmosphere. Finally, on December 1st, after months of work cleaning up the place and the birth of their daughter, Ed and Marsha were finally ready to move in. They had agreed that Myra could stay for 90 days after they moved in until the family could get her settled in a nursing home. That's really nice. It's really nice. That's yeah. Really. Isn't that like a, that's a plot line in Ozark? I never watched that. That has been recommended to me several times. And I feel like I tried and I got through like the first episode and then I just forgot and never started back up again. I think I've seen the first season. My mom recommends it to me constantly. I've heard it's very good. What I've seen, it's great. But there's a thing that they're like living in a house, but the condition of living in a house is that this guy who's like 90 and like dying of like lung cancer. Oh! (laughs) And still live there until he dies. No. I'm not into this only because I would be terrified that they would die while they were still 10, living there. Percent. And then I would have to find them and I don't want and to do deal that. with that. No, and it's not even your relative. Cause like you don't want to deal with that with a relative either, but because you love them, you do. So just like a rando who's living in your house. No, 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 absolutely not. Since Ed's brother was unavailable to help them move in that day, he instead enlisted the help of his friend, George. Although George had been blinded in the war He was able-bodied and with a little direction was able to help carry things into the house. Several times throughout the day, though, George stopped and asked, who's there? Ed reassured him that it was just the two of them. But every so often, George would turn sharply as if someone or something was behind him. And at the time, Ed just assumed he was hearing things and shrugged it off. The first morning after they moved in, Ed began his day as usual. The apartment didn't have a shower, so before he made his way to the kitchen for his morning coffee, he plugged up the bathtub and started the water so it would fill while he was in the other room. He got his coffee and made small talk with Marsha, but when he returned to the bathroom, the tub was empty. The water was still running, but the plug had been removed and the chain connected to the stopper was completely wrapped around the faucet. The fuck? Ed was in disbelief. He was sure he had put the stopper in but decided, obviously, he must have been mistaken. So he put it back in and sat in the tub as it filled, already putting it out of his mind. Later that day, while he was at work, he called the house to check on Marsha. But every time he did, he got a busy signal. And he was slightly aggravated, thinking Marsha was on the phone all day. But when he asked her about it later, she said she hadn't been on the phone, but had eventually noticed that the phone was off the hook and had put it back. Since it was in the living room and she had spent most of the day in the kitchen, it was off the hook for quite some time before she eventually noticed. After dinner, Ed began what would become his nightly routine, working on fixing up the building and specifically cleaning out the basement. The next morning, Ed tested the bathtub again, carefully putting in the plug and making sure it was secure before heading to the kitchen. But once again, he returned to find the tub empty and the chain wrapped around the faucet. But Ed wasn't frightened or shocked. And he was sure there was a logical explanation for what happened. Yeah, ghosts. Yeah. Monique, I love you. Ghosts, logical, told you. Yep. Yeah. 
he decided not to tell Marcia, thinking of it as his own mysterious little puzzle. He began watching the tub as it filled every morning, and when he did, the plug remained in place. But Ed wasn't the only one noticing odd things happening in the apartment. Marcia began noticing that specific things in the kitchen moved around. She would wake up and find dishes out of place, or her broom or small appliances moved about. Although Marcia was convinced that the place was haunted within the first week of moving in, because... Yeah, because she knows what time it is. Marcia knows what the fuck time it is, yes. She kept it to herself, knowing that her logical husband would absolutely not believe her. I don't think I could be in a marriage like that. Right? Like, bitch, if I tell you our fucking house is haunted, you better fucking believe me. Don't sure jan me. Be like, no, this is what's happening. Don't gaslight me. Yes, I know where I put things. If shit moves, I fucking know. Thank you. Yeah. Meanwhile, she was stuck at home all day alone with the baby while Ed was at work. So she just has to fucking deal with it. Ed said their relationship started to change almost immediately and things between them became tense. Although they had agreed that Marcia would stay home with the baby until she was old enough to talk, Marcia told Ed that she wanted out of the apartment and to return to work, feeling that it was safer than staying home. Although she didn't want to tell Ed that she thought the house was haunted, she desperately wanted to escape spending her days alone in the apartment. Ed would try calling her while he was at work to check on her, but nine times out of 10, the line was busy. Marsha continued to insist the phone had been knocked off the hook, but Ed didn't really seem to believe her and was convinced she was running up their phone bill. So Marsha began regularly checking the phone throughout the day, frequently finding it off the hook and having to return it to its place. For the record, when the phone bill came, there were no charges and he fucking realized that she was telling the truth and the phone was just off the hook the entire fucking time. But it wasn't until the day of their daughter's christening that they realized the extent of what they were dealing with. After a simple ceremony at the church, Ed and Marsha walked back with the priest to their house for lunch. As they walked up the stairs, Ed could see Myra looking out. Marsha had entered the house just a few minutes before them but as he turned the knob for the entry hall, he found it locked, which was odd knowing Marsha wouldn't have locked it since they had been right behind her. But before he could get his keys out, the door to the first floor apartment opened suddenly and Myra was in the hall screaming profanities. Oh my. Although he was used to her behavior, they hadn't heard a word from Myra in weeks and were shocked by her sudden appearance. She was staring directly at the priest and yelling, Go away, you fucker. You don't belong here. Coño. Right? Okay. Okay, Myra. Yikes. This is the kind of old woman I'm going to be, though, where I'm just like (laughs) screaming obscenities. Obviously. At a priest, very specifically. At a priest, yeah. I mean, hello, Monique. Come on. (laughs) Embarrassed, Ed just apologized for her behavior and led the priest upstairs away from her. Before they sat down for lunch, Ed asked the priest to bless the house, and he agreed. He took out a brass holy water dispenser and a small leather-bound book from which he read the traditional house blessing. He began in the living room, and as he recited the blessing in Latin, he shook the dispenser in the air to sprinkle a few drops of holy water. But as he raised it into the air, it suddenly exploded. What the fuck? According to Ed, it didn't simply break. It completely shattered. Everyone was obviously shocked by what they had just seen. And the priest was obviously bothered. He bent down to pick up the pieces. And when he stood back up, told them he had to leave. Yeah, no shit. Yeah. He's like, I got to get the fuck out of here right now. Thanks. Like, yeah, I'm going to roll out. Thanks. 
I'll take my muffins to go. Thank you. <laughs> I'm good. I actually <laughs> ate a late breakfast and I'm not super hungry. So I'm going to go. Ed asked him to at least bless his daughter's room before he left. But the priest straight up refused and told them that the blessing was sufficient. Holy no one. No, that's not. Which like, you're obviously lying, dude. Yeah. No, I do not believe you. As someone who's been present at many a a house or situation blessing, that's not how that works at wall. No. He's like, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fine. It's fine. I gotta go. I'm double parked. I gotta go, guys. I'm sorry. (laughs) So sorry. So I think I left the oven on. I I just just gotta, I I gotta gotta go go. check. I bad. And like Marsha said, she's like, we literally just watched like a tool of God explode. So I don't think it worked. No. A hot take. I don't think so. No. But Ed begged him. So the priest walked into the bedroom, quickly said something in Latin from memory, not the book, then immediately turned to leave. He was in such a hurry to get out of there that he mistakenly opened a closet door instead of the exit and literally rushed into a closet full of coats before making it to the right door. Oh my God. Which in my head I picture and is hysterical. I would not, even with the thing exploding, I literally would not have been able to contain my laughter. That's great. Comedy gold. Absolutely. It's great. Although they all found the dispenser breaking odd, Ed just assumed the priest had gotten a bad case of stage fright after that and was in a rush to leave out of sheer embarrassment. But Marsha was not so sure. Then the very next day, while she was in the kitchen, she heard a noise and turned where the appliances were kept, one of which was a hand mixer hanging from a hook that had a habit of falling on the floor from time to time. Just one of the many things that seemed to move about the kitchen. As she watched, the mixer began to vibrate, then lifted off the hook. Then, to her shock, it didn't just fall down, but raised about a foot higher than the hook and stayed frozen in midair for a second before floating about eight feet in her direction and tumbling at her feet. No. Uh Uh-uh. Girl. No. I'm grabbing the baby. I am outside and I am not returning. Like, I will sit on the stoop till you get back home and then we're getting in the car and we're piecing the fuck out of this bitch. If you can find a priest whose holy water doesn't explode to bless the house, then I'll come back. Right? Or rabbi or whoever. I don't care. Anybody. Whoever you have. Person of God. Marcia was paralyzed, though she said she was more amazed than fearful at the time, which kudos on you, girl. I would be out of there. We're not the same. No. (laughs) According to Marcia, the floating mixer would repeat its routine many times in the months to come. After this incident, Marcia was absolutely certain that their house was haunted. Yeah. Literally zero doubts. Yes. In addition to the floating mixer, Marcia also noticed that the cabinets wouldn't stay closed and the kitchen light began flickering, even though everything was on the same circuit, only the light in the very center of the room would flicker. Ed tried multiple times to fix it, but with no result. I would be so frustrated if I was her. Girl. I was like, why are you fixing it? You know it's a ghost. Like, just... Right? You don't, it's like, you don't even have to say it out loud. Like, just, like, blink, like, twice. So that we both know this is what's happening. Uh, she Nope. They're both, like, keeping their secrets. No one's telling <laughs> the other one the weird shit that's happening. Because they're like, no, 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 no. No. Ed's like, I don't want to worry her. And Marsha's like, he's not going to believe me. So I'm going to keep my mouth shut. Isn't this a little bit like like the lamb, the lamb story that they were like withholding the info? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Don't do that. If riches are happening. Open and honest. Am I the only one who would just be like, 
some fucking shit just happened. You will not believe it. Like maybe the first or second time I'd be like, I think I, maybe I imagined that, or I, I missaw that, or I misunderstood that. Like the third time I'm like, okay, something is happening. You know, you want to hear some shit? This is what's going down. Yes. And every night Ed continued his work cleaning out the basement. Every time he went down there though, he said he had the feeling he was being watched. He would feel it immediately, but chalked it up to him being paranoid that Myra would just pop out at any moment. Still, every time he was in the basement, the hairs on the back of his neck would stand up and he would turn around sure that someone was behind him only to see nothing. He convinced himself that he was just working too hard and not getting enough sleep. But weirdly during this time, he started talking to Ben jokingly. Mr. Porno? Yeah, but figured talking to Ben was better than talking to himself. So he'd be like, oh, Ben, you left such a mess in here. Like, I got to clean up your shit. Like, ah, you're flickering the lights again, Ben. God damn it. And he would just like jokingly like, blame shit on Ben and talk to him, which don't do that. Jokingly or accurately? Oh, okay. Blaming shit on him. Yes, accurately. Mm -hmm. But yeah, he would just, he wasn't seriously thinking he was talking to Ben. Right. He was like, it's a joke. But also he was actually. But that's also a very weird thing to do. I've never done that. Right? It is a very weird thing to do. And he placed off like it's like super cash. And I would like, this would be me being like, okay, clearly like the spirits are talking to you or influencing you in some way. And some fucking, you're like about to be possessed, basically. That's not where this is going, but that would be my thought (laughs) for the record. Eventually, Ed found a local antique dealer who would take all the magazines sight unseen. So he was finally able to clear everything out of the basement, except for the pot-bellied stove. He was convinced that Myra must be using it secretly and was responsible for the continued smell of burning wood. Why would she do that? Right? Literally, why? That doesn't make any sense. Yes, exactly. Thank you. You've already told her that she's racking up a phone bill and there's no phone bill. Like, why is she like being like, oh no, Myra, the old lady. Oh, sorry, the old lady. Yes. Okay, that makes more sense. There's so many M's in this, yes. I know. That does make more sense that it's like, who knows what the fuck she's doing. Okay, yes. I, I could, I could, I could justify that thinking that. Yes. But also like, why, why would she go all the way down into the basement to do that? Like, no. So he decided to tear up a few pieces of newspaper that had the date printed on them and left them strategically inside, convinced that he was going to find them burned and he would have his answer. But every time he checked, they were undisturbed, but the smell of wood burning down there always remained fresh. Since he knew Marcia needed company during the day, he decided to get her a dog. They already had a cat, but Ed felt that the dog would make her feel safer when she was home alone all day. So he found a three-year-old shepherd husky mix named Holly, who proved to be a great watchdog. Then one night, Holly started barking towards the back door, and Ed could clearly hear footsteps on the back porch. Assuming it must be Myra, since the door to the porch was locked to the outside, he went to check, but there was no one there. After that, the footsteps on the porch became a regular occurrence, and Holly started sleeping next to their bed. As time went on, more little things kept creeping up. The door that separated the kitchen from the rest of the apartment wouldn't stay closed, even though it was an old painted-over oak door that closed tight, which Ed found odd since usually it was often stuck and hard for even them to open. But it would just pop open willy-nilly. And apparently the handle would... 
butter. Uh, you could see the handle turn. Not. No. 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 You can no. justify other bullshit. Absolutely not. Burn it down. <laughs> Burn it down. Burn it down. Then they started hearing a man and a woman arguing late at night. It sounded like it was coming from their back porch, but they just assumed it must be coming from one of the buildings next door. Once or twice a week, both Ed and Marcia would hear the loud and hateful bickering. Eventually, though, they realized that the argument was always exactly the same, as though it was a record playing over and over. Residual haunting. Right? Mm. Whenever Ed would approach the porch, it would abruptly stop, and he realized that whatever it was, was aimed at them. Then, one evening, a woman showed up randomly on their porch and asked to look in their attic. Ed hadn't even really realized there was one, thinking there was just a crawl space. She claimed there was a cradle up there that she wanted, but Ed could tell she was lying and asked her to leave. He told her he would check for the cradle and call her if he found it. Everything about that exchange is terrifying to me. Everything about, this is like some like hereditary like level of shit that I'm like, who the fuck are you? Right? What, why do you want a cradle? Like what is, no. Ev- like no. Mm-mm. No. Everything about that exchange is terrifying to me. I would be so freaked out. Yes. After she left, he decided to check out the attic. But when he got up there, he got goosebumps immediately and decided not to go in and to wait until it was daytime. Ed said that it was at this time that he realized his behavior was changing. He wasn't afraid of the dark. So it bothered him that he didn't want to go into the attic. And things started adding up. The smell of burning wood, the kitchen door opening, the phone that wouldn't stay on its cradle, the mixer that flew off the hook, the bathtub stopper, and the flickering lights all on their own were unusual, but it was the constant goosebumps and the feeling that he was being watched that was really bothering him. When he examined the attic the next morning, there were a few boxes of old toys, but no cradle. The only other thing up there was access to the gas valves, which turned the gas on and off to the building. Then Ed and Marcia started to notice their cat behaving strangely. Girl, she would run from the living room as if being chased, But when they looked, the dog was nowhere near her in a completely other room. And soon the cat began avoiding the room completely, which before she had like her chair in there, that was her fucking go-to spot. Occasionally she would stand in the kitchen and hiss towards the living room. My cat used to do that. The animals know. Get out. Get out. No, they know. Now, everything that had happened up to this point hadn't been frightening on its own. Just confusing. But as these incidents began stacking up, they began to really see the extent of this and start getting a little freaked out. But for months, they just endured and pretended that everything was normal. Until finally, one day, Marcia casually told Ed that she thought their house was haunted. Ed denied it immediately, Uh, although he admitted he had his suspicions. He didn't want to admit to them or tell her about what he had experienced since he felt bad that she had to stay there all day. If he said, yeah, I think our house is haunted. Bye, I have to go to work. And then just leaves her home all day. He felt like an asshole. So instead so he, he just her. gaslights her. It's fine. Yeah. It's an asshole. <laughs> I was like, that's not better for the record. It's not you crazy woman. Enjoy <laughs> being in a haunted house by yourself while I bring home the bacon. You don't even know how to hang mixers properly. They keep falling <laughs> down. You're ridiculous. But you know, he wasn't completely heartless. So he tried calling the priest again, 
But the priest just straight up refused to come back and said the blessing he gave was sufficient. You're like, hi, but I'm telling you it's not. He was like, can you please, like, just for my peace of mind, like, can you just please come back? And he was like, no, it's fine. It's fine. We're good. And he was like, really? This this seems highly suspicious that like you won't come back. Like, is my house haunted? And he was like, no, I just like, no, I just can't come back. It's sufficient. It's fine. There's lots of churches in Chicago. I would have started getting on the horn. Right? Call somebody else. Also, apparently this happened on another separate occasion, which I don't even go into because, yes, he literally asked his priest to come back twice. And two more times, the priest was like, no, it's done. It's good. And he was like, I'm (laughs) telling you it's not. I'm telling you it's not though, bro. Thanks. Eventually, Myra left. And when she did, she told Ed that she was glad that she was leaving because she was tired of him coming into her apartment and moving things. She literally accused him of putting cigarettes out in her coffee cup. Yep. Like, girl, why the fuck would I do that? Why would anyone do that? Why would anyone do that? After she left, Ed set about preparing the first floor apartment for renters. While he was cleaning in there, he saw a figure out of the corner of his eye. With the light shining behind it, the figure was clearly defined. So he assumed it was Marsha. But when he looked up to greet her, the figure disappeared. He was so certain that someone had been there that he got up and checked the front door. But of course, there was no one there. Later that afternoon, it happened again. And he saw the figure pass by the doorway, not six feet from where he was standing. But he was like, I'm tired. I'm seeing things. That was not real. That's not how that works, but okay. Right. That's that's not how that works. When the apartment was fine and clean, they put an ad out and got several inquiries for renters. They settled on a couple, Dan and Diana, who were around the same age as them and also had a newborn. So they were like, we get it. Marsha was relieved because she finally wouldn't be home alone all day. But Ed kind of wanted them to keep the distance because they're the landlords, those are renters. So he didn't really like want her socializing with Diana, particularly. So she's not alone, but she is still kind of alone all day. In order to keep her company, Ed started coming home from lunch. And the first time he did, he saw an old woman sitting on the stoop when he came home. He thought she was just a neighbor out for a walk who had gotten a little tired and sat down on their stoop to take a rest. When he left, she was gone, but he saw her multiple times after that. He would come home from lunch and she would just be sitting on the stoop. Marsha, in the meantime, was becoming a nervous wreck. The animals were going crazy and the activity in the house seemed to be increasing. So Ed decided he was going to investigate the history of the house and figured the best person to ask would be their neighbor, Walter, who had lived next door for the past 50 years. He said the Verdier family had built the house around 1900 and it had never been occupied by anyone other than family members. There were three children, two boys and a girl named Myra. Ben had been the second son and had passed away in the bathtub of the house of a heart attack. Uh-uh. The mother had apparently died on the first floor of a broken heart. Another of her sons, Henry, had been mentally unwell and had died in the front bedroom. Although there were rumors that he had died by suicide, there was a mystery surrounding his death, apparently, which they don't really go into. Jaws on the floor. All this is a shot from me. Girl. Mm-mm. As if that wasn't bad enough. Ben's wife had actually hung herself in the basement and Walter said that he had seen them carry her out. Shot is on the floor. The trauma is so real. Oh my God. Trauma. Oh, also, as soon as I'm hearing this, like 
bye. We're fucking out of here. This house like is the fucking death house. Get the fuck out. I'm trying to get like three more priests to come. Literally. And if they can't, then I'm out. I'm gonna like, I'm sorry, I gotta go. Like I'm kicking out the first four tenants and literally I'm putting a priest in there. Like that's who's running the room because that's what we need, clearly. I mean. Walter said Ben was also mentally ill and believed that they had both inherited it from their father. According to Walter, he was a real bastard and had abused the whole family. In total, there had been five deaths in the house. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. It's too many. Too many. It's way too many. Then Dan and Diana started experiencing their own weird things. Their chandelier would swing back and forth, but only if they were looking at it. They would also hear noises in Ed and Marsh's apartment when no one was home. But it would sound like there was furniture being dragged or like a fight, and it was very loud. They also heard the footsteps on the back porch and the arguing at night. But they obviously just assumed it was Ed and Marsha, and Ed didn't really have the heart to tell them that it wasn't them. Yeah. Then one night in early May, as Ed and Marsha were lying in bed about to fall asleep, Holly, the dog, suddenly jumped up and stood in an attack position, growling. Ed had never seen her react this way, as though she was prepared for a fight to the death. After seeing that, Ed finally admitted to Marsha that he believed they had ghosts. How fucking long are they living here? It's May. They moved in in December. So five months, six months. It's a long time. It's a really long time. But he was still dismissive. Just like, okay, we have ghosts. So what? Like, what the fuck are the ghosts going to do? A lot. Clearly. Clearly a lot of shit. Like, they can move shit. Let's be concerned. Then he jokingly addressed Ben in front of her. Like, oh, Ben, you're up to no good again. And she rightfully was not okay with that. She immediately told him he shouldn't do that and was worried it would anger them. Then he asked if she thought they had more than one ghost and Marsha definitively said yes. Ed didn't tell her what he had learned from the neighbor and instead brushed it off and went to sleep. The next morning when they woke up, the house was freezing. When Ed went to check, he found the problem. The gas had been shut off. But if you remember, the gas valves are located in the attic. And the entrance to the attic is like a tiny little window that you have to like open and shimmy through, basically. So it's not super easy to access. How the fuck did those valves get turned off? He knew no one had been up there. He now freely admitted that they had ghosts and continued to taunt old Ben. The activity continued and Ed kind of started to treat it like a gate. The door kept opening, so he tied it closed. The plug was coming out of the tub, so he installed a switch drain. He was convinced that he could just outsmart these ghosts and just like, yes, fuck up their antics, basically. They're fucking with your shit from another realm. I think they got you beat, bro. Right? Like, just, you know, like. They don't even have bodies and they're moving shit, dude. Like, you're not going to win. You're not winning this. No. No. Then one day, both Ed and Marsha saw the old woman on the first floor. They assumed that she was staying with Dan and Diana. But when they asked they said that they had no one staying with them. And Marsha was immediately convinced that they had seen a ghost. Ed denied it and told her next time he saw her, he would reach out and touch her and prove that she was real. But she never appeared again. 
And then he says in the book, he was like, I think she knew what I was going to do. And so she just didn't show up. When he asked Walter what the mother had looked like, he described the exact woman they had seen and told him she used to sit on the stoop waiting for her son. Of course she did. Of course she did. Catch the fuck up, dude. Right? At this point, Marcia had had enough. She took the baby and decided to go stay with her parents. While she was gone, Ed continued to stay in the house and go to work. While she was gone, his keys started disappearing. He always hung them in the same place. But when he went to check, they were not on the hook. And when he finally found them, they were lying in the drain of the sink. Girl, that's not even the weirdest part. The key to the garage had been bent in the shape of an L. He got it fixed, but the next day, the same thing happened. This is like hardcore escalation, like big time. Seriously. They're fucking pissed. He found his keys on top of one of the kitchen cabinets and the garage key, which he had just had fixed, was bent again. Ed eventually convinced Marcia to return. He told her that she could spend time with Diana so she wasn't alone in the apartment all day. And she was relieved and was like, okay, if that's the case, I'll deal with it. The first day she was back, she immediately calls her and goes down and hangs out with her in her kitchen all day. They traded stories and Diana told her about seeing a man in the baby's room. Uh -uh. Knowing immediately it wasn't her husband because he was too tall, she ran into the room immediately, but there was no one there. However, when she looked at the baby, the baby was staring at a corner of the room and reaching out with her arms as though she wanted whoever was there to pick her up. And Diana immediately believed that the baby was seeing somebody there that she just couldn't. Oh my God. I cannot even fucking imagine. And she says before this that like the baby was like super good and quiet and like always seemed amused, even if you just like left it in the room, chilling. And then she was like, oh, okay. It's because it thought somebody was in there the entire time with it. That's why it was being so good. Cool. That's terrifying. Yes. So Dan gets home. She tells him we need to move the baby's room immediately. And she knew Dan was super superstitious. So she didn't tell him why. Because she knew if she told him they had ghosts, he would be like, we need to get the fuck out of here immediately. I mean, that's the correct move though. Yes. Dan knows what time it is. Yes. They also had an issue with the door in their apartment, the one that led to the basement. It would frequently become unlatched. And one time their baby almost fell down the stairs as a result. Oh my God. They would always kind of blame the other being like, why'd you leave it unlatched? But Diana soon realized it happened when Dan wasn't home and she knew that it wasn't her. She also admitted that she too smelled burning wood coming from the basement. This is when you do that thing. I think it was a true listener tales that something happened with the door to the, the basement kept opening and the, they were like three years old and the dad was like freaked out that the kid was going to fall down the stairs and die. So they were just like, Hey ghost, we have a kid. Could you like, could you, could you nah. I really would appreciate it. And yes. that they would say that they'd see the door open and then it'd close back on itself <sighs> to like protect the baby. I'm like, great. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks. Not long after this, they went to visit Ed's Aunt Helen, who had come over to their place at Christmas and acted very weird. Like she was normally very outgoing and then she was very quiet the whole time she was there and like clearly got bad vibes about the place. 
She told them that she knew immediately that their place was haunted. She told them to get a crucifix blessed and wear it at all times. When they asked what they should do, she told them to sell the place and leave. When they returned home after visiting her, they couldn't find their cat anywhere. They finally noticed one of the windows had been opened. And when they looked down, they saw her motionless below. No! Don't worry. She's fine. They went down. And apparently, she didn't have a hair out of place, according to Ed. He said it was like she had been lifted out of the window and gently sat on the ground. Because apparently, she's like kind of like a fat house cat. So the odds of her like surviving a two-story fall, he did not think that was likely with no scratch or anything. This happened once again before Ed finally nailed the window shut. Yes, this happened on two occasions. They came home to find the window open and the cat on the fucking ground below. I mean, the escalation is so crazy. It's insane. That night, both Holly and the cat started going crazy, hissing and growling. Then Holly began to attack, fighting at the air as if there was someone there. Eventually, Ed managed to calm her down. But when he let her out the next morning, she immediately took off running. She jumped the fence and never looked back. Ed said they never saw Holly again. Get the fuck out of here. If nothing up to this point made you need to leave immediately, like that would be it for me. I'd be like, the dog is piecing out? I'm getting the fuck out of here. This is crazy. It's insane. Granted, to be fair, they wanted to move. They just couldn't afford it. They had already put all this money in this house and Marsha's not working anymore because she's staying home with the baby. He's just not making enough. Ed eventually bought another dog, a poodle named Princess. But after only a few days, the exact same thing happened. And Princess ran away, never to be seen again. Two dogs. I mean, I mean. After that, Marsha decided to look into finding someone to investigate what was going on and eventually contacted Illinois Psychic Research. After a screening process, they met with a former journalist named Tom Valentine who had done some research at a mental institution and through his research had kind of discovered this like population of the patients there who had like no history of trauma, no history of like mental illness in their family, but all of them had seemed to kind of messed with the occult at some point in their life. And he started to kind of realize that that really does affect people and There are possibly a lot of people who are considered mentally unwell who really have just messed with the occult and it's like fucked them up irreparably. I mean, that's terrifying. It's terrifying. But they also said that to me in religion class. (laughs) They're like, don't do this. I mean. Like, this is not a fucking toy. Don't do this. Here's the thing. Like, I don't really believe in it, but I'm still not going to fuck with it and like treat it like it's fucking a game. No, I don't want to. I don't. I don't know for sure, but I definitely don't want to roll the dice on that. You don't want to fuck around and find out. No, no, no. I don't want to fuck around and find out. (laughs) That is a fact. The next time Tom visited them, he brought with him a psychic by the name of Joseph Deloise. These names are fucking epic, by the way. I know they're great, right? Valentine and Deloise. Right? Bad fucking ass. (gasps) They should be. They should be. I watched that show. Mm. He was well known at the time and had made several predictions about events that had come true. And after meeting with him, they believed that he was the real deal since he had told them things that he should have no way of knowing. He then told them that he believed there was more than one ghost there. 
and that one of them was dangerous. Joe told Ed and Marsha that they would come back to perform an exorcism and told them what to do in the meantime. He told them to avoid anything negative. He seemed to know that Ed had kind of been fucking with them and like teasing them and specifically not to acknowledge the activity. A few days after Tom and his team left, Ed and Marsha received a call from NBC News correspondent Carol Simpson, who said she wanted to cover the exorcism for a news segment. She seemed genuinely interested and not out to ridicule them, so they agreed to be interviewed by her and to let them film what would become the first televised exorcism. Oh my God. Right? I don't know why this never occurred to me as being a thing, but when I heard that that was the deal of this, I was like, okay, I'm into it. Girl. Ed said the house was strangely silent the night before the exorcism was scheduled. When the day finally came, Joe and his team arrived and the film crew set up. They were told everyone must wear a crucifix during the ceremony and that no one could leave the house until it was finished. The sound guy was so freaked out that he asked for a Bible to sit on. (laughs) Which I was like, that seems sort of disrespectful. That's kind of how I felt about it. I would just like hold it or something. They have little pocket Bibles. You have one in your pocket. Right? Thank you. I'm the heathen people. And even I know you don't put your (laughs) ass on the holy book. Come on. Mm -hmm. No. Joe had a crucifix with a mirror and explained that he would attempt to have the spirit approach the cross and face the mirror. He hoped they would realize that they had no reflection and that would cause them to realize that they were no longer of this world and thus allow them to pass on. Let's assume that that's the case. The trauma of that. (gasps) Right? Like, I think I'm still alive. Can you imagine? You're dead. Yes. You're like, these motherfuckers are in my house. What's up? And then be like, they're like, hey, you like the shiny cross? You're like, oh yeah, that's cute. They're like, wait, why don't I have a reflection? (gasps) Oh my God, I'm dead. No. It's literally like the second scene in Beetlejuice. Yes. When they come back to the house and they don't have any reflection and they're playing with the horses in the mirror. Yes. I'm glad you had that reaction because when I heard this was, I was like, is this a thing? I don't think I've ever heard of the mirror cross situation. I've never heard of this. Okay. That doesn't mean it's not a thing though. That comforts me though, Monique. Thank you. Gotcha. As the cameras began rolling, Joe fell into a very relaxed state. Eyes closed, breathing deeply. As they watched, he winced as if in pain and a strong gust of wind came through the room at that exact moment. Strong enough that it literally rattled the blinds. Mm -mm. They knew all the windows were closed though because the sound guy had requested it specifically to eliminate any noise from outside. Because it fucks the sound, obviously. Yes. Ed said they could feel a change in the immediate atmosphere. The air felt thick and heavy and the room became dark as though the sun had disappeared. Immediately, everyone started clinging to the crosses around their necks. Then Joe took a deep breath and spoke, but his voice was so different that it didn't sound like his own. It sounded exactly like an old woman. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. No. He said, the picture, the picture, I need the number. His companion who was with him, who was like kind of trying to keep him from going too deep in the trance, kept pulling him back and saying like, don't go deeper. Like stay with us, stay with us. But Joe just kept saying the combination, the number, I need the number. Then they started to notice the sound of birds. First, there was just one chirping outside. Then the sound began to amplify. It became so loud that it was impossible to filter out. And when they looked outside, they saw hundreds of birds gathered in the tree outside, which is my fucking nightmare. 
I don't like birds. I do definitely do not want hundreds of them outside my house. No. I don't have a problem with birds, but if I looked outside and there was hundreds out, I'd be like, what the fuck is happening? I'd be like, I'm sorry, is Alfred Hitchcock in my fucking backyard? Get out of here. No. Mm-mm. No. Mm-mm. It was so loud that even though they tried to filter it out, you could still hear it clearly when they ran the exorcism on TV. Joe demanded that the spirit leave for what seemed like an hour before he finally seemed to wake from his trance. But when he did, he wasn't smiling and didn't appear victorious. He prayed in silence, then turned to face Ed and Marcia, announcing that the house was clean. Afterwards, him and his team proceeded to seal all the entrances to the house with blessed salt. Although Ed said they still didn't appear satisfied or successful, he just chalked it up to them being tired from the exorcism. Ed had also made his own tape recording during the exorcism, which he and Marcia listened to later that night. They could very clearly hear the birds escalating to hundreds of them outside, but also heard things they hadn't heard the first time. Mm -mm. Knocking and tapping, as well as a child clearly Uh -uh. Uh -uh. saying, Uh -uh. Mama. Uh Uh-uh. Girl, no, no, no. Burn it down. Absolutely not. Burn it down. Side note, now that I'm saying burn it down, because the story was so, so many things. I had to leave out a couple of crazy things because the story is just so intense. If you can read the book, read the book. I recommend it. He actually started having the thought of like, if you keep fucking with me, I'm going to burn the house down. And that's when they started like shutting the gas off. And he was convinced that that was like them reading his mind and knowing what he intended and being like, no, 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 no. We're not doing that. I thought that was very creepy too. Jaws on the floor. Girl. The creepiest thing about the child's voice is they did the exorcism during school hours on a school day and there were no children nearby. Right. That night after the exorcism, they woke to the sound of a woman crying and sobbing uncontrollably from the living room. Definitively from the living room. Ed looked over, but he could see that no one was there. He got the tape recorder, but as soon as he turned Mm -hmm. it on, Mm -hmm. it stopped. Although it was a sound they would never forget, they never heard it again. Within the week after the exorcism, they knew it had been a failure. Absolutely nothing had changed. Although they told the reporter Carol that it had been a success since she called them afterwards because she seemed worried about them. And they kind of seemed to imply to Joe that it had been a success too, I think, because they could tell he felt so bad that it hadn't. But it was not, and everything fucking continued just as before. The arguing, the footsteps, the fucking cabinets, everything moving, all of that shit. Ed believed that the exorcism didn't work because you can't really exorcise ghosts. That's a thing for demons. So ghosts are just kind of attached to a place. If they don't want to leave, they're not going to leave. You can't exorcise them. Right, because they, they, they don't have that thing of like, Jesus commands you. Like, because that's a, that's a demon-specific hierarchy of like Christianity. Yes. After that point, Ed got a second job and eventually Ed and Marsha were able to afford to move out. And while their realtor was unable to sell the house, (laughs) when he found out it was haunted, he agreed to take it on because apparently he was into that. So they just signed over the house to him just so they could get rid of it. Ed said he didn't know what he planned to do with it, but didn't really care. 
He said he checked on it later and it was in disrepair and he could tell nobody was living there. Ed and Marsha both said they were more sensitive to paranormal activity after that and could tell immediately from that point on if they walked into a place and got bad vibes that that place was haunted. They both were fascinated with the paranormal afterwards and continued to do their own research afterwards. And that is the story of Ed and Marsha Becker and the first televised exorcism. There is also a movie coming out based on the book later this year, which stars Aaron Moriarty from The Boys and Jamie Campbell Bower. That was so crazy. It's bananas, McGee. There is so, so much of this story that is insane. Ed's sister moves into the apartment after Dave and Diana moved out and was super into the paranormal and like had a bunch of seances and like the ghost would play the piano and she loved it and she would like, and then kind of like lost her mind a little bit and literally just like ran away one day and apparently has never been the same since. Uh Uh-uh. So many crazy things happened in the story, Monique. Yes. It's insane. Yeah. So they did air the exorcism on TV. People saw it. Ed and Marsha liked how it was covered. They said it was very professional and it was a documentary. They didn't feel ridiculed or anything. They eventually had so much extra footage. They like expanded it into a full like hour long uh, piece that they aired other places because apparently they didn't air it in Chicago because the other segment had run so many times. <laughs> okay. So yeah, if you go online, you can see the clip of the first televised exorcism, which apparently, although they advertised it as a success, was actually a huge failure. Yikes. That was fucking crazy. So if you don't have time to read the book, go watch season two, episode 12 of Paranormal Witness. What's the name of the book again? True Haunting by Edwin Becker. That was fucking crazy. It's insane. Once the dogs ran away, I'd be like, okay, we're, no, no. I'm gone. That's Mm. it. That's it for me. It's a wrap. No, absolutely not. Thank you so much for that story. Oh my God. You're so welcome. Of course. I also can't believe they televised an exorcism on TV in 1970. That seems weirdly progressive to me. I can't, but I can. Yeah. Because I feel like, like the hippie movement and crystals and all that is like a thing in this time. Oh yeah, totally. So yeah, that's fair. It's very true. I mean, I would have tuned in, obviously. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> Record that bitch. That's not really that a thing, thing back you then. Could do? No, no. <laughs> he explains he had to like ask his friend to do it. And it's on like a fucking format. You couldn't even really like play. He didn't, he couldn't even like watch it back. Cause he didn't have anything to like play it on. Right. Yeah. Insanity. That was amazing. Holy shit. Thank you. All right. Now that we have our creepy paranormal story out of the way, are you going to traumatize me with some true crime this week, Monique? Um, Maybe there's a trauma. It might be traumatizing. (gasps) Yay. So this is a story that I was researching, as my notes tell me, two years ago, almost to the day. Ah! Oh my God, I love it. But I abandoned it to do Stephen Platel, which was the whole incest, awful, awful story. That was bananas. Yeah. So we're going to talk, two years in the making, kids. We're going to be talking about Jennifer Pan. Sources, wikipedia.com, allthat'sinteresting.com, torontolife.com, washingtonpost.com, the YouTube channel, JCS Criminal Psychology, and an oxygen show that I will save 
towards the end. <gasps> okay. Oh, oxygen. Oh, oxygen. You're giving it away with the title, you bitches. <laughs> yes. You know exactly what you're getting. Yep. On November 8th, 2010, shortly after 10.30 p.m., emergency operators in the usually peaceful town of Markham, Ontario, received an alarming phone call. The caller identified herself as 24-year-old Jennifer Pan. A panicked Jennifer told the dispatcher that three armed men in masks had entered her family's home, tied her up in the upstairs banister, and led her parents downstairs at gunpoint. She told the operator that she couldn't see her parents, but that she'd heard several pops. A panicked Jennifer told 911, quote, I don't know what's happening. I'm tied upstairs. My dad went outside and he's screaming, end quote. Police rushed to the Pan home on Helen Avenue, unsure whether or not the gunmen were still inside. Once they got inside, they found no sign of the attackers, but they did find Jennifer still tied up to the banister on the home's second floor. Jennifer was screaming to the officers for help. Police freed Jennifer and escorted her outside as the team of officers continued to search the home for any trace of her parents, 57-year-old Han and 53-year-old Bick, Jennifer told police it all started just after 10 o'clock. She'd been in her bedroom talking to a friend on the telephone when she heard a huge commotion. Curious as to what was going on, Jennifer opened her bedroom door. She came out and saw armed men and her parents at gunpoint. While one man kept a gun pointed at Jennifer, the other two demanded money from Jennifer's father, Han. When he told them he only had $60 in his wallet, that enraged the intruder, who then pistol-whipped Han and told him to shut up. Then, one of the men tied Jennifer to the upstairs banister, while the other two ushered both her parents downstairs. But when officers searched the basement, they made a gruesome discovery. Jennifer's mother, Bick, was sprawled in a pool of blood. She had a blanket wrapped around her head and had been shot twice in the head at point-blank range. She was pronounced dead at the scene. Jesus. Mm-hmm. Right out the fucking gate, Monique. I know, I know. It's a, this story is crazy. But authorities couldn't locate Jennifer's father, Han. Jennifer told police that the last time she'd seen her father was during the 911 call. Jennifer claimed that Han emerged from the basement alone, bloody, and clearly wounded. Jennifer told police that she was screaming that she was upstairs, but that she thought that he didn't hear her. So she helplessly watched her injured father stagger out of their home, and she hadn't seen him since. Investigators immediately searched the neighborhood and quickly found Mr. Pan next door in an open garage, shot in his face and shoulder, but miraculously still alive, even if it was just barely. He was rushed to the hospital to undergo emergency surgery and was put in a medically induced coma. While paramedics worked quickly, it wasn't clear whether or not Han Pan was going to survive. The Pans were the epitome of an immigrant success story. Han Pan was raised and educated in Vietnam and moved to Canada as a political refugee in 1979. Bick, also a refugee, came separately. The two were married in Toronto and lived in Scarborough. On June 17, 1986, the Pans welcomed a daughter, Jennifer. Three years later, Bick gave birth to a son named Felix. Bick and Han had found jobs at the Aurora-based auto parts manufacturer Magna International. Han as a tool and die maker, and Bick making car parts. The Pans lived frugally, but by 2004, Bick and Han had saved enough money to buy a large home with a two-car garage on a quiet residential street in Markham, just north of Toronto. In addition to the $200,000 in savings they had in the bank, 
Han purchased himself a Mercedes while Bic drove a Lexus ES300. I don't know cars, but I know they're fancy. That sounds fancy, yep. It's, it's fancy, that's all I know. The Pans made it clear to their children that the bar in their household was set high. Their expectation was that Jennifer and Felix would work as hard as they had in establishing their lives in Canada. They enrolled Jennifer in piano classes at age four, and she showed early promise. By elementary school, she'd racked up a trophy case full of awards. The Pans put Jennifer in figure skating. Every moment of Jennifer's life was filled with school or extracurricular activities, and she was expected to excel in all of them. Some nights during elementary school, Jennifer would come home from ice skating practice at 10 p.m., do homework until midnight, then head to bed, rinse and repeat. What? Yeah. Oh! Can you imagine this? No! This is awful. I mean, yeah. Ugh. Jennifer had hoped to compete in figure skating at a national level, setting her sights on the 2010 Winter Olympics in Vancouver. But a torn ligament in her knee dashed any hopes of her being a professional skater. Jennifer was under an intense amount of pressure, and it wasn't long before the elementary schooler started cutting herself. Oh, fuck. Yeah, which, like, this is so much pressure for a child. Yeah, dude, I could not handle that. Mm -mm. Just let her be a kid and fucking have some fun, son of a bitch. (sighs) Yeah. As her eighth grade graduation approached, Jennifer expected to be named valedictorian and to collect a handful of medals for her academic achievements. But not only was she not named valedictorian, she received no awards. She was stunned and devastated. She had worked so hard and had nothing to show for it. She put on what she called her quote-unquote happy mask and told anyone who asked that she was perfectly fine. Red flag. Don't do this. Right? Also, girl, been there, know that. You know, it was in doing this that I... I remembered that I was like, I think like top three of my class in eighth grade. And I was like, oh, oh, good for you. It's not that impressive. It was like a class of like less than 20. It's really not impressive at all. (laughs) I'm still impressed. Don't don't undersell it. Yeah. This was also, I literally had thought of this in like fucking 25 years. And I was like, oh, I was like, I think I made like a speech. I don't know, girl. I don't even fucking remember. (laughs) Who gives a fuck? I was so happy to get out of there. I didn't even give a fuck. Truly. I hated that place. Jennifer attended Mary Ward Catholic Secondary School in North Scarborough. Karen Ho, who attended Mary Ward at the same time as Jennifer, wrote, quote, As far as Catholic schools go, it was something of an anomaly. It had the usual high academic standards and strict dress code mixed with a decidedly bohemian vibe. It was very easy to find your tribe. Bright kids and arty misfits hung out together across subjects, grades, and social groups. If you played three instruments, took advanced chess, competed on the ski team, and starred in the school's annual international night, a showcase of various cultures around the world, you were cool. Outsiders were embraced, geekiness celebrated, anime club meetings were constantly packed. (laughs) I left that in there for you. Yay! Thank you. I could tell. And I love it. <laughs> and precocious ambitions supported, end quote. And here's the thing. My high school was absolutely like this. I totally get this. That sounds great. That sounds really nice. It was great. My high school was awesome. It's a Catholic school, but it was not, even though it was like a private prep school, it, that, it just wasn't the vibe and everyone kind of got along and there just weren't enough people to have clicks, really. So just 
the everyone everyone intermixed and got on and the whole the whole thing. That's bit. how it should be. Yeah. Yes. That's why I really don't identify with Mean Girls because that was just not my nor high school experience. Nor should you. Yeah. Yeah. Nor Fuck should that. you. I yeah. don't understand hating someone but wanting to be their best friend. That makes zero sense it's to me. It's not cool. Yeah. No. It was a perfect place for a student like Jennifer. She got on well with everyone. Jennifer played the flute and was in the senior stage band. Outside of school, Jennifer swam and practiced the martial art of wushu. But Jennifer's friendly, confident persona was a facade. Underneath, she was tormented by feelings of inadequacy, self-doubt, and shame, which, I mean, girl, fuck same. When she failed to win first place at skating competitions, she tried to hide her devastation from her parents, not wanting to add worry to their disappointment. Her mother, Bick, noticed something was amiss and would comfort her daughter at night when her husband was asleep, saying, quote, you know, all we want from you is your best. Just do what you can, end quote. Her father, Han, however, didn't share these sentiments as he was a classic tiger dad. Tiger parenting is a form of strict or demanding parenting. Tiger parents push and pressure their children to attain high levels of academic achievement or success in high-status extracurricular activities, such as music, using authoritarian parenting methods. The term tiger mom was coined by Yale Law School professor Amy Chua in her 2011 memoir, Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother. A largely Chinese-American concept, the term draws parallels to strict parenting styles ostensibly common to households in East Asia, South Asia, and Southeast Asia. Tiger parents relentlessly drive their child to study hard without regard for the child's social and emotional development. Boo. Don't do that. Don't do that. It's fine to encourage your kids to do extracurriculars and do their best, but like not at the cost of their mental well-being. Yeah. And it's tough because like later on in the story, like I'll, I'll touch on it, but I'm a first generation American also and product of immigrants and, and who are successful. And there is, it's not like this, but there is that pressure to be successful because yeah. you have so much more than they had and they got it together. Yes. Mm, on the nose. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Jennifer's parents heavily monitored her extracurricular activities and forbade her from attending dances, which Han considered completely unproductive. Parties were off limits and boyfriends were out of the question until after she had graduated from college. What? Girl. No. <sighs> so you're just super sheltered and emotionally not prepared for a relationship? Awesome. Great. In the odd occasion that Jennifer was allowed to attend a sleepover at a friend's house, Bick and Han dropped her off late at night and picked her up early the following morning. What? Which literally, what is the point of the fucking sleepover? That's so fun. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm literally going to go there to sleep? Yes. What? No. Sleep somewhere that's not your bed. Ugh. Wasn't that exciting? Cool. By age 22, Jennifer had never gone to a club, been drunk, or gone on a vacation without her family. Oh, I know. That's so fucking shitty. I know. Let this girl live her life, son of a bitch. <laughs> While Jennifer had been a top student in elementary school, halfway through her freshman year of high school, she was averaging C's in all of her subjects except music, where she excelled. 
she knew that this would not be acceptable for her strict parents. While under her parents' roof, Jennifer was able to discreetly stay in touch with her school friends through emails and texts. But she knew that any further slide in her GPA might provoke her parents into scaling back or shutting off her phone and internet. The fear of being cut off led Jennifer to a drastic decision. Using old report cards, scissors, glue, and a photocopier, Jennifer started forging her report cards to make it appear that she was a straight A student. Is this an 80s movie? I love it. (laughs) Into it. Oh, God. No, I I get anxiety just reading that line. That is not for me. That's not you. No, no. no. I wouldn't do it. Couldn't do it. But I respect it. I I see you. And I, I, um, I'm here for this. <laughs> and because apparently universities in Canada don't consider your grades from freshman and sophomore year for admission, Jennifer convinced herself the forged grades weren't that big of a deal because it's not going to affect her, her, you know, admission process anyway. Okay. You gotta get your shit together though, girl. You gotta be girl, making like, the, you gotta be making the grades at the end though. Yeah. <sighs> While the Pans dreamed that their daughter would one day be a highly paid professional, Jennifer's true passion in life was music. All she wanted to do was be a piano teacher. So when in 2003, her high school offered a study abroad trip to Europe to study music during her junior year, Jennifer begged her parents to let her go. And shockingly, Han and Bick said yes. It was the... I'm guessing because it was like educational. That's the only reason why. Educational, yeah. Yeah. It was the first time in her life her parents weren't monitoring her every move. However, after a performance in a concert hall filled with smokers, because again, this is Europe, Jennifer suffered an asthma attack. She started panicking and was led outside of the venue to the tour bus and almost blacked out. Daniel Wong, who played the trumpet in the school band and was a year older, came to the rescue. He calmed her down, coaching her breathing. Daniel stayed composed, gently reminding the terrified girl not to panic and to remain calm until the attack passed. Jennifer said, quote, he pretty much saved my life. It meant everything, end quote. While their relationship had been platonic prior to the trip, for the rest of the school trip, they remained inseparable. And the two started dating. And like, oxygen... Is so, this is definitely a relaxed oxygen moment because they're talking about this like handsome Prince Charming comes to the rescue out of nowhere. And then you see the picture of the kid like oxygen, you need to fucking relax. Relax. Oh yeah, they're very generous. Very generous. They're very generous. And they're like, how salacious can we make this? Oh, oh. And every talking head, you know that they're just like, what is the line that I can say that makes sure that I make it to the final cut. It's like every single person that's a talking head in an Oxygen series. So they start dating. But once back in Markham, reality quickly set in. There was no way Jennifer's parents were going to be down with her dating. Remember, she's not allowed to date until after she's graduated from college. So Jennifer and... Which I think the line... (laughs) I think the line of the series was like... You know, but when <laughs> it's like, but when bad boy Daniel showed up, her parents' rule book went right out the window. It's it's something. It's insane. Oh my oxygen, rel- oh. oxygen, girl. 
relax. Oh, man. They're fucking too much with that, but it cracks me up and I kind of love it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So Jennifer and Daniel kept their relationship from her parents, which, of course, all the sneaking around only made the relationship hotter for the two horned up teens. So titillating. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Daniel Wong was born in 1985 to Chinese Filipino parents and grew up just 20 minutes away from Jennifer in nearby Scarborough. Like Jennifer, he was first generation and had a good upbringing. And again, this might be oxygen wildly editorializing. But Daniel was a bit of a bad boy, as he had a reputation as one of the high school's primary pot dealers. Oh, such a bad boy. Relax. Relax. I mean, he, like, looks like a square. Like, he doesn't have, like, a like a fucking nipple ring or anything like that. Like, oxygen needs to fucking relax. Yeah. But his his status as the, the school's weed dealer made him pretty popular, which uh, yes. I can imagine. Why. I'm sure. But Daniel was falling behind in his studies and had even been charged with trafficking after cops found half a pound of weed in his car. So halfway through his senior... I know, fuck. Yeah, fuck. So halfway through his senior year, he transferred to Cardinal Carter Academy, an art school in North York. When Daniel graduated from high school, the couple made plans to attend college in Toronto just as soon as Jennifer graduated the following year, giving her the excuse to leave home and enable her to see Daniel as much as she wanted. Jennifer's grades improved at school, but while her parents assumed their daughter was an A student, in reality, she earned mostly beads, which was absolutely unacceptable in her strict household. So Jennifer continued to doctor her report cards throughout high school to keep up the facade for her parents. But her grades were good enough that she received early acceptance to Ryerson University in Toronto. Not just that, she had been awarded a $3,000 scholarship. The pans figured their strictness had paid off and Jennifer set her sights on attending freshman classes in the fall of 2010. Han wanted Jennifer to become a doctor, but she said she didn't have the stomach for it and chose pharmacy as her career option. Jennifer's plan was to attend Ryerson University for two years, then transfer to the pharmacology program at the University of Toronto and get her pharmacological degree there. Every day, Jennifer packed up her book bag and said goodbye to her parents and headed for the train downtown. Around this time, Jennifer's brother Felix was away studying mechanical engineering at a prestigious university. Han wanted his son to design cars, not assemble them like his parents. So all was good in the Pan household. Two years into college, Jennifer informed her parents that she had been accepted into the pharmacology program at the University of Toronto, just as she had planned. Her parents were thrilled, and as a reward, her father bought her a laptop. But the school was a bit far away, and Jennifer suggested that she move in with her friend Topaz downtown Monday through Wednesday. So, you know, her commute would be easier. Vic sympathized with her daughter's long commute and convinced Han that it was a good idea under the condition that while she was there, she focused on her studies and the rest of the week she should spend at home with her parents. Okay. Reasonable. I was like, I mean, she's definitely not. She's going to fucking live it up because she's like, yes, I'm free. Yeah, exactly, Amy. She never stayed with Topaz. She stayed with Daniel. Still a secret to Bick and Han with his family at their home in Ajax. Jennifer told Daniel's parents that her parents were totally cool with her staying over. Obviously a lie. 
and brushed off their repeated requests to meet Han and Bic over dim sum. Two years went by, and Jennifer kept up with the arrangement. Two fucking years. Can you imagine that? Damn. Girl. Oh, that's so much lying. Just to too many parties. No. There is so much lying in the story. It's crazy. So as I said, two years went by, and Jennifer kept up with the arrangements set by her parents. She spent three days a week in Toronto to attend classes, and the remaining days with her parents where she would share what she had learned, and every semester, she showed them her transcripts. Straight A's, obviously. In 2008, yeah, see, I, I fucked up the, the, the year before. I'm sorry. I was like, that doesn't seem right. So it wasn't 2010 before. It's uh, before then. <laughs> sorry. It's 2008 now. It's, it's, it's Now it's 2008. It's not 2010 yet. I'm sorry, guys. I'm sorry I didn't catch that. But now it's 2008. We're here. We're good. We're good. We're great. We're magical. Everyone's on the same page. Everyone's on the same page. (laughs) In 2008, as her graduation ceremony approached, Jennifer told her parents that the extra large class size meant that there weren't enough seats. So graduating students were only allowed one guest each. And because she didn't want to exclude one of her parents from the ceremony, she gave her ticket to a friend. Uh, okay. How are her parents not suspicious of this? Like, come on. We're getting there, girl. Okay. We're getting there. While studying at U of T, Jennifer told her parents that she was volunteering at the blood testing lab at the children's hospital named, no bullshit, Sick Kids. No. Okay. I Googled it and I was like, there's no way. It's true. It's real. What? I was like, her lies are getting ridiculous now. They're not even believable. It's totally fucking real. Wow. Wow. Way to be on the fucking okay. nose. Okay. You're like, I wonder what's in there. Sick kids. Sick kids. That's what's yeah. in there. Uh, no more further questions. Thank you. <laughs> so she's volunteering, you know, because she's studying pharmacology. Great. She's volunteering at this blood testing lab at Sick Kids. I can't believe that was real. I really can't. I can. I was like, there's no fucking way. I was like, that's the lie that's going to get her caught because that's so <laughs> unbelievable. It's nope. so real. It's crazy. All right. But that the job sometimes required late night shifts on Fridays and the weekends. So she suggested that she should spend more time of the week at Topaz's, a.k.a. Daniel's. And while that seemed reasonable enough, Han thought that something wasn't right. Jennifer didn't have a uniform or a key card from Sick Kids, so what's that about? So the next day, he insisted that they drop her off at the hospital, and as soon as the car stopped, Jennifer ran out of the car and bolted inside. Han told Big to follow Jennifer, but she couldn't find her daughter. Early the following morning, they called Topaz wanting to speak to their daughter, to which she groggily replied that Jennifer wasn't there. When Jennifer finally came home, Han confronted her, and she admitted that their suspicions were correct. She didn't work at Sick Kids. When she realized her mother had followed her into the children's hospital, Jennifer hid in the waiting area of the ER for a few hours until her parents left, which is some shit. Damn, yeah. Oof. She also told her parents that she had never been to the University of Toronto's pharmacology program. My God. Okay. We're just laying truth bombs out there. Fuck. Girl, it's going to get crazy right meow. Ooh. Ooh. 
I'm sure this was cathartic in some sense, but like, oh my God, I can't. Girl. Like my stomach hurts just thinking about like this and having to do this and being in her spot. No, 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 no. Girl, homegirl had never even gone to college. <gasps> oh my God. Oh my God. Because she couldn't. Because she'd never graduated from high school. Oh! I know. I know. Oh. I know. Wow. Girl. Wow. Granted, she's allegedly four years into her college experience. Yeah. When this shit comes out. What? Oh my God. Oh my God. Girl, this is insane. She failed calculus in her final year and wasn't able to graduate. So Ryerson University had no choice but to withdraw their early acceptance offer. <gasps> Fuck. Dude. I mean, calculus is hard. I get it. I also- only took pre-cal and I like, I didn't even have to deal with calculus. Thank God. Oh. oh. But so like, and the thing is you might be like, okay, so why, like her parents aren't paying for school, Remember that $3,000 scholarship she got? She doctored that shit too. Being like, oh, you don't have to pay because the three, they gave me, they're giving me $3,000. Like she lied about everything. The high school diploma she had was a fake she bought on the internet for $500. <gasps> Jennifer collected used biology and physics textbooks and bought school supplies. Every day of the first two years that she lived at home while supposedly attending college, Jennifer would pack up her book bag and take public transportation downtown where her parents assumed she was headed to class. Instead, Jennifer would go to public libraries where she would research on the web what she figured were relevant scientific topics and fill her books with copious amounts of notes. She'd spend her free time at cafes or visiting Daniel at York University where he was taking classes. I am dying. There is part of me that like appreciates the effort that was put into this because like kudos for you, but Jesus Christ, this seems like so much effort. Girl. (sighs) And then came the biggest confession of all. Oh no. She was still seeing Daniel Wong and that he was the one that she had been staying with for the last two years, not Topaz chills what was their reaction to that they freaked the fuck out i'd be like they might kill me like that's what's gonna happen in this situation they freaked the fuck out now here's the thing i'm not excusing any of this at all i'm not no of course not i am saying that on some level i do get it because like i said i mentioned i'm first generation american my parents have everything they have. They had nothing and they came here and they made their shit happen and they're really successful and that's really great. And in my family, there just was never an allowance to fuck up. And if you fucked up, you had, there was ne- like, you could never go to your parents about it. So there are situations in my family where things were way worse than they had to be because they you decided like hide it. Yeah. They hide, they hit it and be like, no, I'm going to fix it. And then just like dug the grave deeper. And here's the thing. Like, so I, there's part of me, like, this is a lot of fucking effort, but there's part of me that kind of gets it. Oh, like, I, get I have it. a friend of mine who's Spanish, who's also Spanish. He's not Cuban, but he, he's of Spanish descent and like got thrown out of school, like got thrown out of college. He failed out like because of a girl and he faked going to school every day for a year. Like, so because he couldn't 
tell his parents that he fucked up. I get it. So I, I get it. Like, this is, cr- this is crazy. This is a lie yeah. that's four years. Yeah. She's an only child too, correct? No, she's a brother, Felix, a younger brother. Oh, that's right. That's right. Who's Fuck. like studying like mechanical engineering. That's right. You literally just told me that. I'm not. Okay. I told you that many pages ago. There's no reason for you to that remember is, that. No, there is. I'm listening to you intently. She's the first child. Oh, that is a lot of pressure. And the only girl. I feel like I can relate to this because I'm an only child. So I felt like there was a lot of pressure on me because I was the only one. Yeah. You have to do well because you have to do well. You're the only one. You're the only one. Yeah, it's only you. So her parents freak the fuck out. Obviously. I mean, I get it. (laughs) Like, yes. Holy fuck. Hand threw his daughter out of the house and told her to never come back. But Bick through tears. Okay. Gross overreaction. And yeah. that's why she lied to you for four years because she knew that shit. See, that's like the thing. She fucking knew. That's the thing. But her mother, Bick through tears, convinced him to let her stay. They took away her cell phone and laptop for two weeks, after which she was only permitted to use them in her parents' presence. And she had to. Can you imagine? Oh my God. No, I'd be like, I don't even want to get, take it the fuck away from me. I'm good. (laughs) Literally. And had to endure surprise checks of her messages because granted, like she can't have a boyfriend. Jane and her can't be a thing. Uh. They also began tracking the odometer on the car. Like this is very intense. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 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 Okay. This is a, it's Uh. that level. It's that level. Yeah. And they ordered her to quit all her jobs. Jennifer had, because she had to pay for it. Like, yeah, <laughs> she's, you she know, live. four fucking years. Jennifer had picked up a few day shifts as a server at Eastside Mario's and Markham and tended bar at a Boston pizza where Daniel worked as a kitchen manager. Her parents allowed her to keep teaching piano and told her that as long as they were financially supporting her, she was forbidden from seeing Daniel. For two weeks, she was housebound. Don't do that. Don't do that. One, that makes them want to do it all the more. And yes. two, like... Ugh. I had a family member who, who said that her kids weren't allowed to date until after college. So, like, pull that shit, too. How'd that go? How'd that end up? Because she didn't go to college because she got married very young. And she said that the reason she didn't was because of that. And if her kids dated before college and they want to go to college, they all fucking dated in college. Because that's what you do. Yeah. That's, that's, that's just what it's you do. very normal. Yes. And a lot of people meet there. You know, I mean, many a woman goes to college to get her MRS. So. There you go. For two weeks, Jennifer was housebound with her mother constantly by her side. In February 2009, Jennifer wrote on her Facebook page, quote, living in my house is like living under house arrest, end quote. She also posted, quote, no one person knows everything about me. And no two people put together knows everything about me. I like being a mystery. End quote. Bick, taking pity on her daughter, told her where her husband had hidden her cell phone in the house so she could periodically check her messages. So over the spring and summer of that year, she snuck phone calls with Daniel on her cell phone at night, whispering in the dark. Jennifer eventually enrolled in a calculus course to get her final high school credit. But again, still in defiance of her parents' orders because, of course, she visited Daniel in between piano lessons because that's just how the fuck this goes. And granted, she's in her 20s at this point. Yes. Like, let her have a boyfriend. Let her have a normal relationship. 
one night, Jennifer snuck out and pulled that move where she arranged the blankets and pillows <laughs> in the bed. Like, this is an 80s movie. <laughs> like, this is, is amazing. <laughs> to make it look like she was sleeping in her bed. But tell Jennifer- me there was a wig. <laughs> no, that's probably too far. No. I mean, no, I, that's not far enough. That's how you know you've done it right. <laughs> but Jennifer forgot that she had her mother's wallet. <gasps> so the following morning, Bic went to her daughter's room to get it and discovered that Jennifer was gone. Fuck. Mm-hmm. You got to get back by the morning. That's the thing. You got it before dawn, girl. Yeah. Bic and Han ordered Jennifer to come home immediately. They demanded that she apply to college and told her that she had to cut off all contact with Daniel because obviously that's who she was with. That's the problem. Yeah. That's the real problem, clearly. Get her like a tutor or some shit. Like, Seriously. Also, stop having her do all these extracurriculars. Let Daniel come over, hang out for a little bit. That's them dating. And then like, he leaves. Yeah. Don't be so unreasonable. <sighs> yes. Jennifer resisted, but in all honesty... Daniel was over their secret romance. Jennifer was 24 at this point, and the two had been sneaking around for eight years. Yeah, I'd be over that shit too. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. Even though Jennifer was terrified of her parents' outburst, she was also unwilling to leave the house. Like, they're like, hey, you want to do you? Cool, I'm not going to pay for your shit. Just get out of the fucking house and you, you do it on your own. And if this is the deal, then like, okay, fine, bye. Like, yeah. But she doesn't want to do that. She it's it's a you know having the cake eating it too kind of vibe. I gotcha, I gotcha. So Daniel ended things with Jennifer, leaving her completely heartbroken. Things only got worse for Jennifer when she discovered that Daniel had already moved on and was seeing a woman named Christine. Oh no! In case it wasn't already apparent, Jennifer was kind of unhinged, and she needed to eighty six Christine Malto Pronto and win back the love of her life. So she concocted this really wild story telling Daniel that a man had knocked on her door and flashed what looked like a police badge. When she opened the door, a group of men rushed in, overpowered her, and gang-raped her in the foyer of her home. This did not happen. This did not happen. Then a few days later, she said she received a bullet in an envelope in her mailbox. She alleged that both instances were warnings from Christine to stay away from Daniel. But again, there is no evidence to suggest that either one of these things actually ever occurred. Yeah, they don't sound super believable. No. And to you, this and to you something even like less that is believable than sick kids. So <laughs> that's fucking saying something. Yes, correct. Correct. And then to use something like that, which is so horrendous like it's it's the worst thing that you could ever and fucking happens yes happens why would people? you ever say that oh, to just no. get get like a pity card That's is so gross. gross and sick like mm-hmm. I agree. Uh-uh. okay so now we're actually in 2010 welcome okay. kids <laughs> <laughs> it's a time warp it's crazy we don't even know where we are let's right now. do the time warp again um In the fall of 2010, 24-year-old Jennifer Pan was finally living her immigrant parents' dream as a freshman college student and begrudgingly holding up her side of their strict bargain. As long as her parents were footing the tuition bills, Jennifer was forbidden from dating. At first, Jennifer was heartbroken by having to break up with Daniel, but a few weeks of living under her father's new regimen seemed to help her readjust. But Han and Big Pan's satisfaction with their daughter's compliance 
was soon overshadowed when tragedy struck the family on the evening of November 8, 2010, when three armed men entered the pan home, tied up Jennifer, shot and killed her mother, Bick, and shot her father, Han, who was miraculously still alive, but in a medically induced coma. Jennifer was taken to the hospital for observation while investigators searched the home for clues as to who could have possibly done this. Officers noted a particular detail. The blanket wrapped around Bick's head, presumably to muffle the sound of the gunfire, but also to make sure that blood splatter didn't get everywhere, specifically on the perpetrators. Interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. Officers felt that this was a sign that they were dealing with experienced criminals, but the robbery motive just didn't seem to add up. Nothing was taken from the home. The safe had been untouched. Bick's purse and wallet, which were sitting on the kitchen counter and had more than $200 in it, were also undisturbed. Not to mention the attackers left behind the two luxury cars parked in the garage, even though the keys were clearly visible by the front door. Yeah, if you're going to stage a robbery, uh, steal some shit. Yeah. Yeah. So it became clear pretty quickly that this was more than just a robbery gone wrong. After Jennifer was cleared from the hospital, she was taken to the police station to give a statement. And she repeated what she had told them at the scene, that she'd been in her bedroom talking to her friend on the phone when she heard loud voices downstairs. She came out and saw armed men holding her parents at gunpoint. Jennifer said that one of the men spotted her and ordered her to the living room as the other gunmen made demands for money. Jennifer said she watched helplessly as the gunmen attacked her father. And once she was tied to the upstairs balcony, the masked men led her parents into the basement. Then Jennifer said she heard what sounded like two pops and her mother's scream. Then another two pops. That's when the masked men emerged from the basement and fled the house, which is when Jennifer said she was finally able to call 911 for help. Her cell phone was tucked in the back of her yoga pants, and that even though she was tied up, she said that she was able to reach around and pull the cell phone out and call 911. When asked for a description of the attackers, she offered little details other than they were men and one of them had dreadlocks. So they take her statement and they let her go. Two days later, police brought Jennifer back in for questioning and gave her a second interview. At their request, she showed how she contorted her body to get her cell phone out from her waistband to place the call while tied to a banister. And while that definitely checked out, detectives still felt that something was off about Jennifer's story. Again, if this were indeed a robbery, why did the intruders not take the car? Why didn't they have a crowbar to get in or a backpack to carry the loot or zip ties to restrain the residents? Because Jennifer was tied with shoelaces from her own shoes. What? No. But most importantly, why would they shoot two witnesses but leave one who had definitely seen them unharmed? Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is highly suspect. Uh-huh. The police assigned a surveillance team to monitor Jennifer's movements. They even surveilled her at her mother's funeral three days later. According to reports, Jennifer was emotionless the majority of the time. She never shed a single tear and kept her eyes to the floor or entirely shut for the duration of the service, which, yes, everyone... Grieves differently. Grieves yeah. differently, absolutely. And, and But there's a whole lot of sus going on. Yes. The flags, the red flags are raised. They are aplenty. Yes. On November 12th, authorities received an unexpected break in the case. Han had woken up from his <gasps> three-day induced coma. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. He had a broken bone near his eye. Bullet fragments lodged in his face that doctors couldn't oh! remove. Girl. Girl. 
and a shattered neck bone. Chills. No, I don't like that. Girl, I know. Fuck. This is a lot. Damn. It's a lot. But remarkably, not only was he awake and alive, but he remembered everything from that night. What? I am fucking impressed, dude. Dude. And he wanted to speak to the police. There was a thing that, that the cops were like. He was like, yeah, hi. Hi. Um, could you come here right now? Thank you. There was a thing that, that doctors were like, look, 50-50 if he's going to make it. And if he does, he's going to be so fucking brain damaged. Like he's not going to be like, it's not going to be a thing. So he's like, guess who's back, bitch. <laughs> and I know everything. I know everything. Cops rushed to the hospital and listened to the horrifying details of what Han experienced in the basement. Vic and Han both had blankets wrapped around their heads and his wife was executed right in front of him. Oh, I can't imagine. No, that's awful. Han was then shot twice, once in the face and once in the shoulder. After being shot, Han passed out, but moments later, he regained consciousness and in a panic, fled to the neighbor's house in search of help. And while most of the story lined up with Jennifer's description, Han did reveal a couple of new troubling details to the investigators. Han said that he believed that his daughter knew who the masked attackers were because contrary to what Jennifer had said in her statement, the men were very nice to her. And he recalled his daughter whispering to one of them, quote, like a friend, end quote. And that her arms were not tied behind her back while she was being led around the house. And like, here's the thing, the, the cops are like, Girl, are you sure? Like, you also, like, just got, like, shot in the face. Like, maybe... Yeah. You're not really remembering correctly. Yeah. And that's when Han told the police that Jennifer was known to lie and be duplicitous. And Han spilled the tea about everything. He told police about all the lies, forging her report cards, spending $500 on a fake high school diploma. I was going to say... Bitch, there is a fucking paper trail yep. eight years fucking long of you lying. Like, what? Faking going to two different universities for four years, forging transcripts, her secret relationship with Daniel Wong. Yo, this is wild. All the tea. Ugh. But Han told police that they gave their daughter one last chance to get her life back on track. They told her that they were enrolling her in school so she could finish her education and that they would pay for it and financially support her while she did it under the condition that she agree to a life that included her being heavily monitored by her parents and that her secret boyfriend, Daniel Wong, would stay out of the picture. Han told his daughter that if she wanted to be with Daniel, then she would have to wait until after he was dead to do it. Okay. Wow. Maybe don't say that, though. My mother's told me that about getting a tattoo. What? So to wait fuck. until after she's dead to do it. She's not dramatic at all. Oh, clearly. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> Uh, that's ridiculous. If you want to get a tattoo, get a fucking tattoo. Exactly. I'm like, relax. You have beautiful porcelain skin. You would actually look amazing with tattoos. If you were one of those like girls with like the fucking sleeve, like the sexy pinup girls. Oh, no, you can pull it off. See, it's funny because I've always flirted with the idea of like maybe getting a tattoo, but I do have commitment issues. Obviously we've discussed at length. Same. Yes. So for Halloween, I was Amy Winehouse and I had all the tattoos. You looked so good too. Thank you. Yeah. But you know, I was like, this is not for me. It's not my look. Okay. You know? That's fair. So according to Han, Jennifer accepted his offer and registered for classes and began college for real. But what made him most happy was that for more than a year after she had moved home, 
there had been no sign of Daniel Wong re-entering his daughter's life. And I don't, like, it's not mentioned anywhere. I don't know if her parents know about his, like, weed dealing and that maybe that's part of why they hate him. That was why? Or they just, like, on principle, no dating, no boys? In in one of her interrogations, she mentions that they don't like him because he's of mixed race, aka he's Chinese and Filipino. Okay. All right. Which can we just can we just stop with all of that? My God. Literally, who gives a shit? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yes. But authorities wondered if it was true that Jennifer had stopped seeing Daniel, because after all, for eight years she had often told her parents that she had ended things only to continue to see Daniel in secret. Was it possible that the two had come up with a deadly plan to remove the only obstacle that stood between the two of them being together once and for all? Investigators immediately tracked Daniel down at work and brought him in for questioning. The 25-year-old quickly admitted that his history with Jennifer's parents was suboptimal, uh, not his word, mine, but insisted that he and Jennifer's relationship ended after Han's final ultimatum a year earlier and that he had moved on. Not only that, Daniel Wong had an alibi— He had been working at Boston Pizza during the time of the murder. Police checked it out, and it's true. He was working, so they had no choice but to let him go. So if it wasn't Daniel that Jennifer was whispering to during the attack, who was she speaking to? On November 22nd, the police brought Jennifer in for a third interview, and the detective had a decidedly different tone than in the previous two interviews. And unbeknownst to Jennifer, she had been moved from victim to suspect. The detective told Jennifer that they knew she had lied to them and that she had hired those people to kill her parents. And through sobs, she denied that that was the case. As the detective started wearing her down, with Jennifer on what looks like the brink of confessing, she says, quote, but what happens to me? End quote. Throughout her interview, she asked this question nine times. What? Mm-hmm. narcissist much jesus it's like so fucked up because like girl we got you we got you dead to rights we know you fucking did it yes and because in an interrogation you can't be like you'll be fine i'll make sure that you like yeah of course get, because you know you can't do that so she kept being like if i like basically without saying like if i tell you then what happens to me but what happens to like, me what are you gonna what are you gonna do for me yeah So she says this nine times before finally admitting that, yes, she knew the gunmen and yes, that she had hired them, but that the whole plan had gone terribly wrong. Oh, I'm sure. It was, you know, Jennifer told detectives she didn't hire the gunmen to kill her parents, but to kill herself. Oh, what? Girl. Like suicide by hitman? No. uh... Essentially, yes. Okay. A tearful Jennifer told detectives that while her parents may have believed that she had gotten her life back on track after being forced to break up with Daniel, she had actually spent the last few months slipping into a deep depression. She felt that she was never going to live up to her parents' standards, and because of that, she felt that there was no reason to keep on living. And while confronting her failures had been painful, news that her beloved ex-boyfriend Daniel Wong not only had a new girlfriend, but that he had been seeing her for the last year, turned her suicidal. She felt that life without Daniel just wasn't worth living. 
Jennifer wanted to die, but she didn't want to further shame her parents with a suicide. So she told detectives that she came up with a plan to hire someone to come kill her so that it would look like she was murdered. A friend of hers connected her with a man who went by the name Homeboy, because of course he did. Okay, amazing. Who claimed that he could arrange the hit, that he could have her killed by three gunmen in a staged home invasion. Jennifer then said they agreed on a price of $2,000, which if any hitman charges you less than like... 10 grand, I feel like it must be like minimum. Not even. I think way more than that. Yeah, two grand's too low. I'd be like, this dude is ratting me out day one. Literally, he's walking from the hit to the police station. That's what's happening. I... In the first university I went to, because I went somewhere else for, for the first year I was there... There was a chick I knew who was like, I know someone who'll kill a person for $200. And I was like, one, that's alarming. Two, that guy's flipping on you in a second. So don't ever take him up on that situation. Yes. You don't want to, I don't want to know the person who's going to kill somebody for $200. Yeah. Don't trust someone who's going to kill someone for $200 or $2,000. Absolutely not. I feel like they kill you while you were handing them the money for the hit. They'd be like, all right, I got it. Bang, bang. And you're like, great. Or they would just take it and then like, fuck off. That too. Also, just don't have hits on people. (laughs) You know, wild stuff being presented. Hot take, yeah. So Jennifer said they agreed on a price of $2,000 and scheduled the hit for the night of November 8th. When the night finally arrived, Jennifer admitted to unlocking the door to let the intruders in. But Jennifer told police that as she waited for her assassins to arrive, she started having second thoughts and decided to call off the suicide plan. Jennifer said she reached out to Homeboy to cancel the job, but that just after 10 p.m., the gunman showed up anyway, demanding to get paid. They asked for the money, and Jennifer told police she handed over $2,000, which was not only the agreed-upon price, but all the money she had. But she claimed the gunman wanted more, at least 10000 When she told them she didn't have it... Hey, <laughs> did I call the minimum price for a hit, or did I fucking call it, Modi? <laughs> I haven't done any research into this. That was a wild-ass wild guess. I mean, that's a fair guess, yeah. I still think it's way too low. It's definitely way too low. I am not disagreeing with you on that. When she told them she didn't have it, Jennifer said the men got angry and as a result, shot both of her parents before leaving the house. So detectives are like, all right, I'll bite. Who's homeboy? And she said she didn't know. She was only given his alias and his phone number. Cool. What's his phone number? You know, like with all this stress since the shooting, like I forgot, I forgot it. Um, but I can give you like three digits of his phone number though. It's like, is that cool? Oh, thank you so much. That's so helpful. So she claimed the number had a five, an eight, and a six in it. Cool. Great. Cops are like, great. Hey girl, um, how about you give us your phone? Yep. So authorities hand Jennifer's cell phone off to the technology experts, hoping to identify homeboy's number based on the digits Jennifer had provided. And it wasn't long before they determined that the 856 number was a phone registered to a Lenford Roy Crawford. Lenford Crawford was a part-time mechanic and small-time weed dealer. Investigators quickly tracked him down, and not only did he admit to knowing Jennifer, but he told investigators that the two had been introduced through a mutual friend, Daniel Wong. Oh, shit. (laughs) All right. Tie up your loose ends. You people are so bad at this. So bad. According to Lenford, 
He knew Daniel from back when he was dealing pot in high school. When police asked Slenford if he helped Jennifer hire a gunman that attacked her family, he denied knowing anything about it, and he told police that she never asked him to help kill her parents or kill herself. But police remained convinced that there was more to the connection between Lenford Crawford, Daniel Wong, and Jennifer Pan than any of them were willing to admit. So investigators began combing through the phone records of all three, particularly through their text messages. Oh, and guess the fuck what? Amateur hour, baby. Contrary to what they had told their parents and police, Jennifer and Daniel's romance was far from over. Oh. They also noticed another phone pattern that started up in late summer of 2010. It was at that time that both Daniel and Jennifer began making frequent contact with Lenford Crawford, along with 31-year-old David Milvagny and 22-year-old Eric Cardi. While the messages were intentionally cryptic, detectives soon keyed in on several exchanges, like this one. Here's an exchange between Daniel, Jennifer, and Lanford. Daniel, okay, so what's up, you in? Lanford, yeah, man, is this for real, though? Jennifer, I'm dead serious. This is for real. Daniel, you heard her straight. Jennifer, what do I need to do? Lanford, can you pay? Jennifer, how much? Lanford, 10 stacks. Jennifer, I can get it. And also, this is just a personal pet peeve, but when you're plotting your parents' murder, (laughs) could you have the fucking respect to spell out Y-O-U and... And for real, F O R, not not the the number four. How fucking dare you? I love you. I so love you much. You're speaking to my soul right now. I'm fucking cracking up. Get the fuck out of here. I want capitalization, proper spelling, and punctuation, please and thank you. I will even I'll even get away with the, the non-capitalization. But a four a f- number four and a real, not even a space. How fucking dare you? Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Oh my God. There were also text messages saying, if you do both, 10, meaning 5,000 for killing Big Pan, 5,000 for killing Han Pan. To police, this was physical proof that Jennifer and Daniel had hired Lanford Crawford to contract out the double murder of Jennifer's parents. Lanford then hired hitmen, Eric Cardi and David Milvagny, and an unknown person to commit the crime. Following the discovery of the text messages, police placed Jennifer Pan, David Wong, Linford Crawford, Eric Carty, and David Milvagny under arrest. The five faced the same list of charges, first-degree murder for the murder of Big Pan, attempted murder for Han Pan, and conspiracy to commit murder. Prosecutors decided to try Jennifer Pan, Daniel Wong, Linford Crawford, and David Milvagny at the same time. Eric Carty was not tried with the rest of his co-defendants due to an unrelated murder charge, which- What? Quit your day job, bro. This is the second time you're getting booked on a murder. You clearly fucking suck at it. <laughs> oh my God. This is fucking amateur hour. It's like nonstop amateur hour, pathological liar edition. That is so ridiculous, dude. I fucking can't. You deserve to get caught if you're fucking doing that. But what kills me is these people are fucking morons and then someone's still dead at the end of it. Like that's, that's the thing that actually kills me. So the trial began on March 19th, 2014 and was expected to last six months, but stretched out for nearly 10. More than 200 exhibits were filed, 
including the more than 100 text messages between Jennifer and Daniel in the six hours leading up to the murder. Oh my God. Like, amateur at work. Uh, All caps, exclamation points. Yes. Bold italics underline. Absolutely. Yes. Over 50 witnesses testified, including Ricardo Duncan, a goth kid Jennifer had given $200 to to kill her parents in the spring of 2010. But he kind of felt weird about it because he's like, um, I don't, I don't think I want to do that. Oh my God. So he promptly returned Jennifer's money despite the hysterical phone calls Jennifer had made demanding that Ricardo kill her parents. Prosecutors revealed that while Jennifer may have been desperate to be with Daniel, she also stood to inherit half a million dollars in the event of her parents' death, which is a hell of a fucking motive. Damn. Yeah. With her parents out of the picture, not only could Jennifer continue her relationship with Daniel, but the two could live comfortably off of the inheritance. Jennifer was on the stand for seven days, which is outrageous. You'd never take the stand in your own shit. Ever, ever, ever. Especially a murder trial. Oh my God. Holy fuck. So also your lawyer sucked. Yeah. Seriously. Attempting to explain away the damning text messages with Crawford and Daniel and the calls with Milvagni and desperately trying to convince the jury that while she had indeed ordered a hit on her father in August 2010, three months later, she wanted nothing of the sort and kept reinforcing the suicide via home invasion story. Uh, I have my head in my hands because this is just asinine, honestly. Yes. Yes. On December 13th, 2014, Jennifer Pan was convicted of the murder of her mother and attempted murder of her father. And like prior to to reading the verdict, she's like bubbly and smiling and literally like picking lint off of her lawyer's like jacket. Like in her mind, there's no reality she's being found guilty. Like the narcissism is so fucking real. Out of control. And just the like disconnect from reality is very real. When the guilty verdict was read, Jennifer showed no emotion. However, once the press had left the courtroom, she wept and shook uncontrollably. For the charge of first-degree murder, Jennifer received an automatic life sentence with no possibility of parole until after 25 years. For the attempted murder of her father, she received another life sentence to be served concurrently. Daniel Wong, Milvagni, and Lemford Crawford each received the same sentence. In 2015, Eric Cardi was convicted of conspiracy to commit murder and received an 18-year sentence. The judge also granted two non-communication orders, one banning communication among the five defendants and the second preventing Jennifer from ever speaking to her family again at the latter's request. Oh, fuck. What? I mean, yeah. get it, obviously. Uh, yeah, I don't want to talk to you anymore. Thanks. You, you tried hired, to murder us? Yeah, you hired Thanks. amateurs to try to kill us. Thanks. Han and Jennifer's brother Felix both wrote victim impact statements. Felix said that he had become closed off and suffered from depression in the wake of his mother's murder and father's attack, and that he had moved to the East Coast to find work with a private tech company and escape the stigma of being a member of the Pan family. Han wrote, quote, When I lost my wife, I lost my daughter at the same time. I don't feel like I have a family anymore. Some say I should feel lucky to be alive, but I feel like I'm dead too, end quote. He went on to say that he is unable to work due to his injuries and lives in constant pain. He suffers from anxiety attacks and insomnia, and when he is able to sleep, he has nightmares. 
Hans said that he had given up gardening, working on his cars, and listening to music because none of those activities brought him joy anymore. He moved in with relatives nearby as he could no longer bear to be in the home where he was attacked and his wife was murdered. While he's desperate to sell the family home, no one will buy it. Han ended his statement addressing his daughter saying, quote, I hope my daughter Jennifer thinks about what has happened to her family and can become a good, honest person someday. End quote. Jennifer Pan and Daniel Wong will both be eligible for parole in 2040. And that is the crazy fucking story of Jennifer Pan. Damn. That was bananas, McGee. Crazy. Yeah. And the the source, the oxygen show was snapped killer couples. Yeah, I, I, in the middle, I was like, I bet it snapped. Of course. Of course. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah. That's insane. I don't support tiger parenting, but I definitely don't support murdering anyone. So eh, I'm going to say the uh, murdering them was far worse than the tiger parenting. Going out on a limb. Hot take. Yeah. Amy, controversial yet brave, always. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying the things people won't, Monique. No. That's right. It's not true. Yeah, so that's a story two years in the making, I guess. I fucking loved that, though. That was insane. Yeah. The level of lies. The level of lies and the narcissism. I can't. That's exhausting. It sounds exhausting. That many years? Oh, no. No. And here's the thing, like, you know, my, I have a complicated relationship with my parents because of the like first generation American-ness yes. and the only girl-ness and, and everything that All entails. Yeah. So I withhold a lot of things from them because it just makes my life easier. Yeah. But I don't, I'm not saying I graduated. I'm not like going somewhere every day, pretending that I'm going somewhere when I'm not and doing that for four years. That's insane. When you reach the level that you're forging documents and shit, you, you got to cut it off. You got to cut it off. That's too much. It's too far. That's like, catch me if you can't shit. You got to stop. You gotta stop. And like repeatedly. Yeah. Oof. But not graduating high school, not really. That's was not expected. Great. Girl, it was like not expected. Yeah. The onion just kept, the layers were so fucking crazy of the lies. Oh, yeah. I fucking loved that story, though. Thank you so much for that. Girl, I got you. I fucking loved your story. What the fuck? Bananas. Bananas. There's televised exorcism. It's just a, a B-A-N-A-N-A-S episode. <laughs> yes! Let's peel <laughs> this bitch. Yes! Love it. We're so obsessed with you guys. Thank you so much for listening. This is another fucking horror podcast. I'm Monique Sanchez. And I'm Amy Traden. You can follow me on the gram at pinupgirlmo. You can follow me at Lobotomy, and that's Lobot, period, Amy. And if you don't follow the show on the gram, you should. We're at another fucking horror podcast. Every six episode, we do a true listener tales episode, which was last week. So if you didn't hear it, check that shit out. Will we read your true personal crazy stories? So if you have one or you just want to say hi, email us at another fucking horror podcast at gmail.com with a period instead of the you and fucking. Guys, we are so obsessed with you. Thank you so much for listening. Keep it cute. Keep it creepy. Bye. Bye.